Welcome to episode 211 of x Lapsed, where we are finally, finally, at the Hellfire Gala. And we're doing so exactly 100 episodes away from when we started X of Tens. I don't know how that worked out, but uh, episode 111 was X of Swords uh, creation. So we started that event with episode 111, we started this event with episode 211. It's uh, pretty wild. Anyway, let's get into it here. We got uh, we got quite the issue to discuss, uh, but not a whole lot of discussion. But we'll get to that as we uh, as we work our way through. Now, this is Marauders number twenty one, of course. Had an August twenty twenty one cover date. We got two stories here. The first is called "You Are Cordially Invited to the Hellfire Gala," and it comes with a backup that's called "Out with the Old: Colon A Tale of Hellfire Gala Past." I'm Guessing the tale of Hellfire Galapest is uh, a retroactive um, post-colon <laughs> title there. I'm guessing it was probably just called Out with the Old. Now, the writers we got here are Jerry Duggan on the uh, on the fore story and Chris Claremont on the back story. I'm just going to read the rest of the creators like in order of, uh, of job here. Um, art by Matteo Lali and John Bolton. Colors, Edgar Delgado and Glynis Oliva. Letters, VCs Corey Petit and Tom Orzachowski. I haven't had to say that word in a very long time. Uh, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, of course. Edits, Be So White, No Senti, and Sabolski. Cover price, $5. And this one went on sale June 2nd of 2021. Now, of course, we'll start with the main story here, the front story. It opens with an invitation to the Hellfire Gala, which occurs on the evening of the summer solstice, which uh, was... Two days ago, in the real world, uh, June 21st, which is also my uh, wedding anniversary and my wife's birthday. So uh, I guess there's uh, another reason to celebrate. Now we go off to Mykines Island, which is referred to as a protectorate of Krakoa. There, Emma, Sebastian, and Call Me Kate are waiting for the festivities to kick off. And I suppose I probably ought to say that the ladies look rather ridiculous in these outfits, which may be the point, I don't know. Emma is basically wearing an entire polar bear's worth of white fur and a crystal crown. Now, Kitty's outfit is something I couldn't imagine anyone being able to dress themselves in without the help of at least two or three other people. I guess it's a good thing that Jumbo Carnation has multiple sets of arms, right? Um, Now... A question I got here, just from the start, are we supposed to be viewing the mutants as being kind of elitist and completely aloof throughout this event? I don't know if that's the case, uh, but that is the vibe I'm getting here, and if that is the way it's going, it's uh, it's going to be a little difficult to root for them throughout. 
Now, Shaw mentions that it's nice to be at another Hellfire Gala. And in a few minutes, Emma is going to welcome everyone to the first ever Hellfire Gala. And then our backup story will take us back to another Hellfire Gala that claims that uh, the Hellfire Gala is an annual event. Editors? Anybody? Anybody there? Is this thing on? Anyway, people are beginning to arrive. And we see that Domino and X-Force are heading up security. And the first crew that we see arrive are the Avengers. And we got Captain America, Thor, Captain Marvel, She-Hulk, Blade, and the Robbie Reyes Ghost Rider. That's weird, I didn't know he was an Avenger. Now Tempo meets them in New York City outside of a gateway, and she pins a Krakoan flower to their chests so they can pass through to Mykonos, and uh, maybe they can also uh, have tabs kept on them while they're uh, on mutant land, I suppose. Now upon passing through the gate... Cap says, hello, X-Men, and Shaw mumbles that uh, they're not all X-Men, when what he probably should have said is, there are no X-Men right now. Okay, okay, never mind, forget I said it. Next, we see the Fantastic Four, and uh, Matteo Lali, whose work I really dig, draws a pretty bad Ben Grimm. Um, Not a great one. Uh, With the four are Franklin, Valeria, and Alicia, and uh, Kitty and Frank have a hug. Iron Man arrives next, but refuses to pass through a gateway he just flew to the pharaohs himself. He doesn't trust the gateways, uh, nor the mutants, I suppose. Next, Doctor Doom saunters through, followed by... Reuben What's-His-Face from the Coven Akaba, the uh, Russian diplomat that we saw way back in Hoxbox, Donald Pierce. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson comes through. Uh, He's on a panel with two people who are drawn very particularly, so I'm sure I'm supposed to recognize them, but... For the life of me, I can't. Then we get that AIM beekeeper who helped Phantom X and the rest during the giant-sized slogs from a while back. He and Gene fist bump, which uh, feels wildly out of character for one of them. Doctor Strange is next, and as he comes through, he you know he takes a look at everybody and comments that he's underdressed. And uh, you know I I'd probably counter that with uh, you're not as stupidly dressed as the mutants, so don't don't feel so bad about yourself. Now, Professor X, who looks like a slot machine threw up on him, he heads over to greet Reed Richards. He apologizes for how things ended with them last time, and if you recall, during the X-Men Plus Fantastic Four miniseries, Xavier gave Reed quite the mind wipe. Now, Reed gets close, whispers something into Xavier's ear, and walks away, or stomps away, kinda. We We don't get to know what he said. Maybe, maybe we'll get a better look at this in another chapter. Who knows? Now, Kitty and Franklin, they chat a bit about how the latter isn't, and never was, a mutant. Xavier overhears this and uh, welcomes Franklin as one of his very favorite humans, um, which uh, seems condescending, a little patronizing, and maybe digging the knife a little bit. I also suppose that this is a confirmation that it you know, was Xavier who delivered that odd message over in Fantastic Four number 26. One of our theories was that maybe it wasn't Xavier. Uh, the... Casual manner of speaking and the fact that nobody's mentioned it since then it, um, it stood to reason that maybe it wasn't him But it looks like uh, looks like it was Now Emma takes the stage She welcomes everyone to their first of hopefully many Hellfire Galas And uh, I hope not I hope there aren't many or any more of these And also this isn't the first we, We've established that Now she brings Rhapsody out on stage to perform now, Rhapsody is a mutant, an old Peter David character from the, his early 90s run on X-Factor. 
She begins to play a weird Krakoan instrument, and aided by Jean and the Stepford Cuckoos, makes the song like this weird mind-controlled jam session of sorts here. Like, the invitees are all like, like they're, they think they're playing violins, kinda, and this music becomes just this all-encompassing sort of vibe, I suppose. I'm not sure the invitees would be all that cool with this, <laughs> but what do I know? Uh, Dr. Doom does not play along. Uh, we might assume that Tony Stark doesn't either, because he did have uh, psychic dampeners uh, with him when he arrived. He mentioned that to uh, Quentin Quire. We also see here that Dolores What's-Her-Face from the X-Desk is in the crowd, and she's sitting next to Reuben What's-His-Face. No relation, I assume. Uh, we shift scenes outside to the roof, where the Marauders, because of course this is an issue of the Marauders, believe it or not, uh, plus the AIM Beekeeper, they're there rolling dice. They're gambling. Now the Thing wanders up to see what all the hubbub's about, and he's rather annoyed that nobody thought to invite the, quote, ever-loving blue-eyed Thing to the festivities here. And, um, you know, I know if you're writing the Thing, you have to have him referred to himself as the, you know, ever-loving yada yada yada, but damn, does it feel forced. This is like pearls scattered across Crime Alley levels of forest here. Um, and also, uh, Lolly draws a really rough thing. Mm. So not, not the greatest scene. Back inside. Banshee and Emma reconnect for a minute. Which, as a Generation X fan, really you know scratches an itch for me. It's worth noting that Emma's changed costume. She's no longer wearing the polar bear. She's now in that uh, weird Steve Martin arrow through the head thing that we see on the cover. And I think she probably also donated like a foot of her hair in between scenes here because she looks completely different. Now, Emma's happy that Sean accepted her invite, and he claims that he got both of her invites. Though we don't quite know what this entails, uh, Emma excuses herself to schmooze before we get any kind of explanation, and uh, Sean is a little bit, uh, I don't know, he, he seems a little bit ill at ease with uh, this other invitation. And uh, Emma, like, she kind of, like, stops him. She's like, hey, you know, this isn't the night for bad news, so if you have any bad news, save it. We don't know what this is. Um, was he invited to maybe join the Quiet Council? There are, you know, very many. <laughs> there are several empty seats there now. Maybe she invited him to join the Marauders. We do know from solicits that he is on an upcoming cover, right? Maybe it's somehow more related. Sean and Mora were very, very close. We know Emma knows something about Mora, right? From the hospital scene. Who knows? Who knows? Now, she wanders over to Captain America and Doctor Doom, who are, uh, well, just kind of staring at one another. Um, Emma attempts to intervene in uh, this staring contest, and it's, uh, it's all quite boring. Then, this weirdo from the Shi'ar shows up to congratulate the nation of Krakoa for conquering Earth. Now, this gets a belly laugh out of Doom. And the Shi'ar weirdo then tells Emma that they filled her request, and uh, they are here with them on their ship. Emma hasn't the foggiest idea what he's on about, and sends her brother Christian to go take care of it. Shinobi Shaw then heads over to Emma to warn that some of the UN ambassadors are negotiating trade deals. Emma's not all that worried about this. She suggests that, uh, you know, the, the high tide helps all ships or whatever, right? The, uh, the better everyone's doing, then, you know, stands to reason the better Krakoa will do as well. She walks away, right past Rubin, the Russian, and Chen Zhao of Ominous Verandy. The trio chats about getting together with other ambassadors, 
And I didn't realize that Kavanakaba were an actual political power? Yeah, whatever. Uh, anyway, Sebastian Shaw watches them talk, so maybe this will come back around. From here, we get a weird page with the Stepford Cuckoos making Wilhelmina What's-Her-Face from the Hellfire Tots and Omenas Verandy remember... something. We don't know what just yet. From here, we jump to, I'm assuming, a little bit later in the evening. Emma calls for the inner circle to convene before the fireworks and the final wardrobe change. This is a full-page spread, which uh, facilitates Marvel doing a little bit of star-effing um, to keep the comics a little bit relevant. I think I recognize Conan O'Brien here. Um, it's either him or the Riddler. <laughs> I'm not sure who I'd prefer. And uh, I mean, if given those choices and Conan the Barbarian, I would take the Barbarian. From here, we get a montage of vignettes. We see a Guardian or Vindicator, or whatever the hell we're calling James McDonald Hudson at this point. He's chatting up Northstar and Kyle. He congratulates them on staying together, the implication here being that he and Heather haven't been quite so lucky. Not sure if this is new information or something I should already know. Then we get Captain America chatting up Henry Peter Gyrick a bit. Gyrick sort of kind of compares Krakoa to Latveria, which, uh, eh, famous last words, perhaps really last words for Gyrick. Uh, we don't know where he's headed. Emma chats up Kitty a little bit uh, and suggests that uh, maybe... Ms. Frost has uh, a little bit of the hot pants for Captain America. She then reads his mind to find out that uh, she reminds Cap of his dear old mother, which I think is an attempted comedy. I don't know. Emma then holds a toast with the inner circle to brighter days, hopeful that once the soiree is over, there won't be a need for a marauding Magic Meds black market, and everybody will be cool with Krakoa. Sebastian thinks it might go the other way and they'll wind up losing global allies due to this shindig, and uh, I gotta agree with all Shaw here. Right now we get our double-page spread of roll call and cred, believe it or not, all the way at the end here. Emma Frost, Call Me Kate, Sebastian Shaw, Doctor Doom, Captain America, The Five-in-One, Banshee, and Franklin Richards. Which is an odd array, is it not? Hmm. Now we resume at the end of the night, and the folks in attendance are shown reacting to what all went down during the party, and some are rather shocked. I'm going to assume we're getting all the deets in Planet Size X-Men, so uh, we don't know what it's going to be. And, uh, I mean, it is... it kind of feels like it's a pretty obvious reveal we're going to get. Um, and while it is pretty obvious, I have managed to remain unspoiled, so... Uh, Fingers crossed that uh, we get a little bit of a surprise when we read that uh, at the beginning of uh, next month. Now we close out with Cyclops and Captain America sharing an awkward goodbye handshake. Cap asks if Scott knew about whatever it was that was revealed. He says he, he didn't know. He had a bit of an inkling as to where things were headed, but he didn't know anything for sure, which is kind of the position I'm in. Now Cap suggests that Scott and the mutants might have solved one problem, but in so doing, might have created an even bigger mess. And that is where we leave our front story here. In the uh, interest of completionism here, let's talk about the backup, right? The backup is here for a reason, I would assume. Maybe. Hopefully. Uh, let's get into it. This is from a backup uh, that was in uh, one of the early issues of Classic X-Men, which served to fill in some, you know, blank spots in X-History uh, back when, you know, there was only one book, or maybe two or three books, but uh, certainly not the glut that we have now, so there was a lot of room to groove and, uh, and add lore. So let's get into it. 
Now, it's sometime during the week between Christmas and New Year's, and it's the annual Hellfire Gala. We see Sebastian Shaw and that Lordes woman who was shoehorned into the outro of last issue dancing in the foreground. The White King and Queen, which, you know, the Queen is not Emma Frost here, they're seated on ornate chairs watching over the ballroom. Lourdes uh, suggests to Shaw that he's a fool to trust this White King. Now, this White King is Edward Buckman, the president of the Hellfire Club. He's a human, and he ain't all that keen on mutants. Lourdes is also a mutant, which we kind of figured that out last time. Sebastian heads over to pay his respects to the, ro- the white royalty. Buckman suggests that Shaw might make a fine black king, and Shaw is quite moved by the sentiment. The whites then break away to dance. Lourdes still has a funny feeling about this, and even talks about how their enemies in the X-Men have always defended all mutants, while this goofball that they're attempting to ally with would rather see them all dead. Shaw heads over to Tessa, who we now know as Sage, to observe Buckman throughout the night. She's not all that much help here. She claims not to have enough data on the man. Shaw then heads out to the terrace to psychically chat up Emma Frost. He tells her that Lourdes is troubled by the White King. Emma's not surprised. Shaw then asks about their guest. Now, this guest that Emma has, you know, shacked up wherever the hell she is, is Colonel Michael Rossi, who had been in a comatose state since having his plane shot down during X-Men number 96. Now, this Hellfire story was published in Classic X-Men number 7, March 1987 cover date, which reprinted X-Men number 99. So, not too far off from X-Men number 96. Rossi had met with Stephen Lang about Project Armageddon, which would have been a pretty deep cut back in 1987, much less in 2021. Frost reveals here that Rossi found out about Project Armageddon's true purpose, which is to eradicate mutants, duh. He also found out that Edward Buckman, this white king, is mixed up in it, and this really, really ticks Shaw off. Rightly so, right? Just then, a sentinel busts through the roof of wherever it is that Emma and the comatose Rossi are. Shaw demands that Lourdes use her teleportation ability to zip he, Tessa, and herself to Emma's place. And she's not so sure she's powerful enough to perform such a feat. And so, Shaw wraps his hand around her throat and suggests that she damn sure better be. Wow. Anyway, she does the thing, and uh, while it does take it all out of her, she does manage to teleport them to their destination. They're greeted there by Harry Leland, who is quite pleased to see them. The Sentinel then fires a coil at Shaw, which encoils him and snares him. Lourdes rushes to his side and teleports him safely out of the rigging and out of the grasp. But when she pops back to her tangible form, the Sentinel harpoons her right through the back, killing her. Harry Leland then uses his power to control mass in order to make the Sentinel crash to the floor. Why he didn't do that in the first place is a bit beyond me. Shaw then rushes in to the Sentinel and repeatedly punches it in the face until it stops moving. As Lourdes lay dying, she asks Shaw why Buckman hates them. Shaw kisses her and says that they hate what they fear. And right now, he is going to give them something they can truly fear. And so, we head back to the Hellfire Gala. Now, Buckman is there. He's welcoming the elites and the henchmen of the Hellfire Club. He then takes a gun from one of the grunts and proceeds to shoot them all to death. Then, he shoots his white queen. He then seems to break out of whatever trance he was just in, snapping back to normal, and he is just beside himself. He doesn't know what he was doing. He doesn't know how he was doing what he did. And he just, he's asking, you know, how did this happen? Well, he's then approached by Shaw and Frost, because 
duh, they mucked with his mind, causing him to kill his allies. Shaw then takes his pistol and crushes it in his hand while he raises Buckman up by the throat with his other hand, and there he snaps Bucky's neck. We close out with Shaw vowing that mutants will rule the Hellfire Club and, eventually, the world. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, more Hellfire Gala in the pages of X-Force. But for now, let's uh, let's talk about this uh, introductory chapter. Now, if I'm being completely honest, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about this one. Like I mentioned at the start of the show, um, there's a big discussion with this issue, but just not a whole lot to discuss about the issue, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens that we can talk about, and we have during the synopsis, but... The way in which it's formatted kind of defies analysis, right? It's, you know, I don't mean this is disparaging, but it's all over the place. And, you know, that's not a an indictment on poor writing, poor plotting, poor pacing. That is just what this issue is supposed to be. You know, this is vignettes to give us like this weird, you know, inch deep, mile wide look at the night. You know, we're looking at it from... You know, from an airplane right now, we're looking down on it. We're only seeing little bits and pieces here. I'm guessing that the rest of the event will be more hyper-focused on different bits and pieces of of the evening and of the story and of uh, the Mykonos. You know, we're going to be on different parts of the island here seeing what's going on and having this evening fully fleshed out. That wasn't the job of this issue. This issue was just here to introduce everything. And I think as, a, as an introduction and as a... Uh, as a preamble to the deeper dives on the gala, it did a fine job. As a story, however, like I said, it's kind of all over the place. We're not supposed to have all the answers just yet. This is like if you were trying to analyze, uh, what was it, X-Men Prime. You know, the first issue back after the Age of Apocalypse, which was mostly vignettes, right? It was like, it was establishing the status quo. It was gonna, it was introducing story threads that were going to be, you know, looked at more closely and fleshed out more in the various X-Men family of books. It's basically what we got here, you know? I feel like this issue might be something we can analyze after the dust settles, perhaps? Like, when everything is said and done, we can look back at this and be like, okay, well, we can see where this headed, we can see why th- why this focus was important here, because it played out later on. And so I hesitate to really... uh Try to analyze this, and so uh, I think we we won't. <laughs> We're not going to. We'll we'll look back on this one as we move forward here, and we can see where things went and where things came from. But uh, I don't want to analyze this story, nor the uh, the backup, because the backup I think is here to introduce uh, this generation of readers to Lordis. I'm guessing that wasn't an accident that she was brought up at the end of the last issue of Marauders. So. I'm thinking this is just to introduce us to her, and uh, maybe she will, uh, maybe she'll show up during this uh, this current year gala. When we looked at the solicits for um, next month's books, the books that come out after the Hellfire Gala, the issue of Marauders is kind of a take on Marauders number two's cover, which had Emma and Sebastian like back to back in front of a table that had like chess pieces on it, and this time there was Emma and a dark-haired woman back to back. And I assumed, or maybe didn't assume, but I posited that maybe it was uh, Celine, you know, the former Black Queen. Now I'm wondering if maybe it was Lourdes. <laughs> you know, maybe she is back, or will be back in some form or fashion. So the backup served a purpose there. It did introduce us to Lourdes. I, I am almost positive that I read that um, 
that back up before. It's it's been many many years, and I couldn't tell you a single thing about it until I reread it. But uh, I think it was a a wise play if we're going to be bringing Lotus into the current year to uh, you know give a little bit of an introduction. It also gives the issue a little bit more heft. You know, uh, sometimes we get issues that are regular sized for five dollars. So here at least we got a little bit extra for it. So can't really complain about that. Can't really complain about it just yet. <laughs> we'll see how it goes, and uh, we'll reflect back. But other than that, not a whole lot more to say. Um, the art here was fantastic outside of the thing. The thing did not look good. I would love to see uh, John Byrne's reaction to uh, this thing, because uh, the, the way people draw the thing seems to be one of the things that uh, gets under John Byrne's skin quite a bit. So I'd be interested in seeing his thoughts on this take on the thing. But that's where we'll leave the discussion here. Uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got uh, we got a sizable mailbag today, so let's get into it. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Children of the Atom number one. He says, this was a fun one. Vida Ayala is an amazing writer, and they clearly love their ex-trivia. This makes me think about all the mutant-ish groups from over the years that these children could actually be. The most obvious option is the Inhumans, but they could be Neo or MGH users, or escaped science experiments, or Skrulls, or time-traveling chimeras, or Eternals. They could have been created by Mad Jim Jaspers, or Mr. Sinister, or that weirdo Jamie Braddock, or Dark Beast. There are so many permutations. I hope they're not robots or clones, but who knows. My money is on the old Mojo Spiral partnership. I'll definitely be there to find out whatever happens. And you're totally right. There are just so many ways this could go. We don't know what or who they are here. Uh, if you've gotten to this episode, you've probably uh, gotten to the third issue of Children of the Atom, where it was revealed that they somehow stowed away or stole a spaceship. Right? They were sent into. They sent themselves into space. The the spaceship kind of fell apart. They had to take escape pods back to Earth here. One of the things that I had um, floated during our discussion of the first issue of Children of the Atom was that perhaps they were able to somehow get a hold of the Initiative-era New Warriors uh, technology. You know, we talked about how the depowered mutants from after M-Day joined this crew of New Warriors, took new code names on, got uh, those powered suits, right? Those suits that gave them basically superpowers, right? I was wondering if maybe the Children of the Atom had come across some sort of a cache of, uh, of tech. Uh, you know, because we did see optic blasts, but we did also see that Cyclops last had to, you know, dial the, uh, the visor in order to do it. We don't know how, you know, Nighty Nightcrawler or Daycrawler can, can teleport, but maybe they found some sort of teleportation tech. I don't know if this will be as easy as just a... As, uh, what's her face? Oh boy, a gimmick. What's her real name? Car- Carmen. Uh, I, I, this might just be as easy as Carmen being very vigilant on Mutant eBay. You know, uh, we did see her bid on Shards of Magneto's helmet. So maybe she is just very, very diligent, uh, has Google alerts for any sort of mutant, uh, mutant paraphernalia or, uh, or equipment being sold. I really don't know. But seeing as though they were able to stow away on a ship, that tells us that. They're getting into places that they really ought not be. And that tells me that maybe they got a, they found a cache of those New Warriors uh, uh, weaponry and, and costumes. And we know that Carmen is a, you know, a cosplay guru. So maybe 
they found these powered suits, and uh, she was able to work her magic to uh, make them more X-Men themed, right? Whatever the case, I am looking forward to the reveal. I just hope it doesn't take too long to get there because uh, it's been it's been a slow burn, very very slow burn. We're three issues in, and uh, we know very very little. But thank you for checking in on that issue, and I'm happy that you enjoyed it so much. Uh, next up, Evan talking about Sword Number Four. He says, I thought the idea that Manifold, quote, talks to the universe was kind of meh, but you gave it more thought than I did, and I like your interpretation better. Also, tying it in with uh, Abigail Brand being somewhat at odds with Krakoa's goals, uh, if mutants always lose throughout Mora's lives, maybe it's not the universe's will that they ever succeed. And if, like you said, Manifold needs to be in sync with the universe to get those favors granted, that could cause a big problem down the line. And boy, now I wish I remembered what I said about that. <laughs> that was a while ago. I don't remember uh, what I uh, what I said about Manifold's powers here. Uh, now, if you haven't listened to the episode there, or if you're not reading Sword, Manifold is a character who is in charge of uh, basically teleportation, right? And you could look at him as a teleporter, uh, just like any number of uh, of X Men characters here, including. Ms. Lourdes, apparently, from uh, the backup of of this issue. A lot of teleporters here, but the thing about Manifold that makes him different is he isn't teleporting. Of course, we've only seen him use his powers to teleport, at least as far as I can remember. But his whole gimmick here is that he basically communes with the universe, with the galaxy, and that's how he facilitates movement from place to place. In this issue, if I'm remembering right, this is a uh, King and Black issue, of course. He requests from the universe a bit of sunlight. You know, the whole thing was like null covering out, you know, blocking out the sun and the symbiotes doing whatever it is that symbiotes do. And so uh, Manifold was able to request from the universe a little bit of sunlight with which he blasted um, Kid Cable, who was nullified. He was in the in the symbiotic goop, and it burned it away. Now, this makes Manifold both the potentially strongest character and potentially the weakest character, because everything he does is kind of limited by what the universe will give him, right? If he if he asked for this sunlight to, to take out Null and the universe didn't respond, well, then there's a problem, right? We just have this guy standing there begging the universe to help him, and... Uh, well, the universe will do what the universe wants to do. And I really do like that angle here, because when we met Manifold, and of course we knew Manifold from uh, Hickman's new Avengers, I believe, or maybe it was just Avengers. Uh, it was pre-Secret Wars, 2015. Uh, all I knew about him was that uh, that he teleported. So learning that there's this new wrinkle, or a different wrinkle, was uh, was a lot of fun. And uh, as much as I you know, hate giving Al Ewing credit... <laughs> I uh, I have to, because this was a fine issue. But uh, thank you so much for uh, writing in about that issue and uh, also reminding me about uh, some of the things I said about it. Next up, Jesse talking about X-Factor number nine. He says, Good afternoon, Chris. I hope you and your wife are well. We are. It's been quite a while since I'd written into the show, and I find it easier to just drop my opinions on the Facebook page most of the time. Work gets in the way a lot now, and I have to do some episode hopping to get the shows in the order that I, f- that I can find to read the books. In other words, I'm behind on some episodes, but I'm excited to listen to the dedicated and hard work you put into them. Thanks. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. It really, really means a lot to me. And as of right now, we're like just shy of two months away uh, from this being a daily endeavor. And uh, I'd like to really get to that year. After that, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we're, we'll still do all of the uh, current year books, but uh, I might take a day off every now and again after that, uh, once I have that little milestone <laughs> in there. So uh, it's, uh, eh, you know, some uh, a peek behind the curtain. Jesse continues. I wanted to drop my short review of X-Factor number 9, a.k.a. the last actual issue, since there is no such thing as a gala. The book really did feel like it was being written for the long-form story at the beginning of the issue, and then into a rushed, condensed mess at the end. It felt like two or three issues packed into half a book. And yeah, 100%. 100%. uh, For folks who haven't yet uh, listened to the episode on X-Factor number 9 or don't follow X-Factor... Uh, we found out from Leah Williams that she found out that the book was being axed halfway through the second-to-last issue, which sucks so much. Imagine that you're in your you're in your penultimate issue, right? Um, but it's really now your final issue because the last issue that Marvel's going to give you is going to be tied into the Hellfire Gala. So you're told when you have maybe eight, nine, maybe ten pages left in your story that. Hey, you know all those stories you've been building up for the past uh, year? You better get what you want in in the next ten pages because that's it. Really, really sucks. And yeah, once you hit the staples on this book, it is a totally different uh, situation. The pacing is different. Things are very, very hyper-condensed. And I mean, that's not the fault of the creative team. That's basically... Doing one of the things that uh, we always appreciate here on the show, uh, playing the ball where it lies. You know, uh, you're told that this is the realities of the comics industry. Make it work. And Leia did what she could to do so and did a really good job, all things considering, right? Jesse continues, I'm not totally sure if Dazzler and Lila have ever played together before. Have they? I was happily surprised with this, but I'm starting to get sick of seeing Wind Dancer in the books now. The X-Corp that had Wind Dancer just didn't make sense. And you know, I didn't even think about that until reading this. It's like a no-brainer that Lila and Dazzler played together, right? I I, I was like, I'm almost 100% sure they have, but I couldn't tell you where. Uh, So maybe you're right. Maybe they haven't ever played before. Seems like a missed opportunity. Hopefully it's uh, not something that would get its own series. (laughs) But uh, it's it's fun to see it every... uh, Every now and again. As for Wind Dancer, you know, I don't know what the original plans were for her. I, I'm guessing that we're just going to get the, like, the inch deep mile wide on her from now on because this story where she, you know, she had her brains blown, she blew her own brains out in Mojoverse, and now she is the babysitter of the Mojoverse, but she's also considered some sort of. I don't know, video-making master, so she's doing the PR for X-Corp. It's, I don't know, it seems very basic, um, very surface-level characterization for her. Um, Yeah, I I really don't have an opinion on it one way or another, but it is what it is, I suppose. Jesse continues. Some might think that the old Irish effect on the scroll was creative, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a quick end to needing two pages really fast. I didn't like it, and it didn't work for me, and it kind of interrupted the story flow. The whole book was confusing and didn't have good pacing, but thanks to you, things made a little bit more sense. Well, I appreciate that. I, I hope <laughs> I helped out. I, I was just as confused as everyone else. 
And I agree. The uh, it, it wasn't the maybe it wasn't the best way to convey the information through the scroll text, the scroll pages, but um, it was creative. It fit the tone of the story with the Morrigan, and it served the purpose. You know, like we said here, Williams and uh, and Baldion had eight to ten pages to to wrap this up. And it's like, well, uh, we can take two of those pages and just just do an info dump. You know, it's... I appreciated it more that they did it this way rather than cramming it into two pages of info page, right? Without any sort of illustration, just here it is. This is, uh, this is the Morrigan's life. This is what the Morrigan's all about. I can appreciate that there was an effort made because uh, not all these books would do that. You know, I mean, we've got issues of X-Force and Wolverine that... Uh, Basically have Ben Percy writing several pages of script into an info page because, you know, it's like they can't be bothered to draw it. This is the opposite of that. We get all the info page information on very nicely drawn uh, panels. So, yeah, I, I guess I really can't complain about it. It's just a victim of circumstance, I guess. Uh, Jesse continues. I love the Peter David story that explained the link between Longshot and Shatterstar, and it can be read as just a one-shot. I don't believe that Allison knows about her link with Shatterstar, but I would love to see that story play out sometime. And yeah, this was uh, highly predicated on the Peter David story, where it was, and, and it's like without the without the notes in front of me, and I wrote like several pages of notes on this uh, last time out. Even even now, it doesn't make <laughs> it's something I can't keep straight. Shatterstar was born of Dazzler and Longshot. They thought that he died, but or they thought that she lost the baby, but she actually delivered the baby. He was taken into the future. Uh, what's his face? The what the hell was his name? I can't remember his name. The the wizard chemist guy from uh, Alchemist from the Longshot miniseries used Shatterstar's DNA to propagate Longshot. So, in a way, Shatterstar is the father of his own father, which was fulfilling a prophecy or a riddle. Put out by the Morrigan And kind of facilitated Shatterstar being brought into the story And also uh, wrapping up the story as neatly and tidily as possible Now in that, as we mentioned, Dazzler was there on Mojoverse Doing the concert with Lila She was part of the rescue effort for Shatterstar As they come back through on Krakoa You know, Shatterstar thanks her um, And she's like, eh, no problem Which... You know, made me think she probably doesn't know that she's actually his mother. <laughs> so uh, it would be a very interesting story to see play out here. I would, uh, I would like to see that. And I mean, I don't even. Where is Longshot? Have we seen him since the uh, Longshot saves the Marvel Universe miniseries from like Marvel Now era? I wonder where he's at. I wonder if uh, we'll ever be seeing him. I wonder if he'll show up at the Hellfire Gala. Pro- probably not. But uh, we'll see. Jesse continues. I'm sad to see this book go. Hellions, Way of X, and New Mutants are my favorite books, and losing Cable and X-Factor is such a crime that it should be the fourth law on Krakoa that should not be broken. But, you know, they love to break the Krakoan laws. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's tough seeing this one go. This was, uh, as we've mentioned time and again, one of the very few books in this line that has a reason to exist. Has an interesting premise in that, that is in and of itself, right? Doesn't rely on everything going on in other books, but can tie into things going on in other books if it suits the right purpose. I was looking forward to a lot more out of this. 
I was looking forward to just a whole bunch of investigations. Uh, you know, taking these characters off of Krakoa. You know, we did see them go to London, right? We saw them go to London to uh, to pick up uh, Siren before the Morgan story kicked off. I would have loved to see them, you know, traveling the world and uh, learning a little bit more about some of the some of the subplots that were introduced in this. The iBoy thing, the prodigy perhaps having a double out there, Aurora's mysterious death. There's a lot of meat on this bone that we're just leaving, and it uh, it really kind of sucks. It's it's unfortunate that this. This was a lower-selling book, right? I mean, there are plenty more lower-selling Marvel books that, for whatever reason, they won't cancel. Um, Excalibur is down there, too, and they won't cancel that either. I don't know. But uh, I guess we just hope for better things here. <laughs> um, Leia Williams is doing The Trial of Magneto, and apparently X-Factor will be playing into that. So uh, I hope we get a little bit of a, a little bit of follow-through. On, uh, on some of the stories there And maybe, I mean, who knows Maybe when the trial of uh, Magneto's over We'll get ourselves a brand new X-Factor number one I mean, stranger things have happened, right? You just uh, you just never know uh, Jesse continues with I can't wait to hear you talk about X-Men number 20 This book was really good They need to give Mystique her own title And yeah, if you've listened to uh, last episode I did talk about X-Men number 20 It was really, really good And, uh it was nice to actually have nice things to say about the flagship book and get that that weird old hoxpox feeling in my gut. You know, uh, reading through hoxpox, you had that like that weird sensation. And it's like, okay, things are things are happening here. Things are popping. Things are changing. We're you know we're planting you know literal and figurative seeds where we just can't wait to see how things play out. And it's only been three issues of uh, X-Men Volume 5 that have given me that feeling. Uh, Issues 6 with Mystique, of course. Issue 7 with The Crucible. And here, Issue 20, again, with Mystique. So, great issue, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on that as well. Jesse wraps up with, Well, until we find out there's something between Betsy and Quinan, make my next last. Well, you might not know this, but Betsy Braddock did at one time occupy Quinan's body. Um, that is some very, very obscure X-Men trivia. They never, ever mention it. So I just figure I should share that as often as possible because, you know, not many people know about it. I mean, I don't know why Marvel won't talk more about this. It's like we never see Betsy and Quinan on the same in the same scenes together. It's, it's pretty insane, isn't it? But thanks so much for writing in on our uh, dearly departing X-Factor book. It really, really sucks that we won't have this one to talk about much longer. Now, finally, we have one more message, and it's from our friend Al Sedano, who is writing in about X-Men number three and New Mutants number three, episodes uh, 25 and 26, I believe. And uh, I love getting messages from way back in the day here. It uh, really helps to refresh my memory here. And uh, and if you know folks are bouncing around, this is uh, this might help you out and give you a, an episode you might want to check out, or it might just remind you of some things here. Al says, sorry it's been so long, but I just finally read Dawn of X Volume 3, so it's time to get back into your episodes. First, X-Men 3. I think I like this a bit more than you. I didn't love horticulture, but it was nice to see new villains who weren't just anti-mutant haters. I don't think I want a multi-part crossover featuring them, but I am fine if they pop back up from time to time. Yeah, I think it's safe to say most people. Enjoyed X-Men number three more than me <laughs> Even if you hated it, you probably enjoyed it more than me uh, Did not like horticulture um, I think no, horticulture is very, very one note 
Uh, we've talked about Hickman's humor being a thing that doesn't actually exist. And it just felt very, very forced. It felt very, um, what did I, I compared it to like the rapping grandmother on uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. It's like, uh, not funny. <laughs> not funny. We, we got it all in the first panel and we didn't need many, many more panels. They will show up uh, time to time. Uh, you'll see them if you decide to read the Empire X-Men four-parter. They will you know, be prominent in that. They also come back during the uh, the Curse of the Man thing. Um, not miniseries, sort of miniseries, sort of collection of one-shots, whatever it was that we covered not too long ago. Horticulture does come back there, and um, I'm thinking, because I, th- I think Man-Thing is either getting his own series or just maybe his own one-shot again. Horticulture might be... Might be getting taken from the X-Men And I'd be okay with that You know, if, uh, if Man-Thing wants to keep horticulture He can <laughs> He can, I'd be fine with that uh, Now Al continues New Mutants number three Well, this was interesting So it looks like this title won't just be about the New Mutants team But maybe about all the different next generation teams Have the young X-Men gotten a spotlight yet? Well, well, well Looks like Al got to um, the farm issue <laughs> Of New Mutants that Really took us all aback, I feel um, We end issue two of New Mutants With uh, with a, you know, a to-be-continued, of course In space uh, And then we open up the next issue And it's something totally different Completely different kids, completely different setting uh, they, they head to uh, Beak's parents' house On the farm in Nebraska It's A drug cartel gets involved It's totally different from the, uh, the New Mutants in space storyline uh, Very jarring To the point where it's like yeah, it's like we always joke about in Excalibur. I think I missed an issue. It was similar in this uh, in this outing here. It's like you open it up and it's like, what in the hell? I must have picked up the wrong issue, or they must have stuffed this issue with the wrong pages. It's uh, very, very bizarre, very, very jarring, and uh, it was not great. <laughs> that farm story. It wasn't awful. Um, I feel like many of us would have received it better had it come like right after. The uh, New Mutants in Space storyline And didn't interrupt it Because, you know, it just felt like It felt like a fill-in And it was very much a fill-in, you know Now as for the young X-Men No, no, I don't think they've gotten a spotlight just yet uh, A few of the members of the new X, uh, the Young X-Men were part of uh, Magic's Dark Riders, I think Like Wolf Cub was there Shark Girl was there I think they were of that era but um, in New Mutants, no, I don't think we've gotten any young X-Men just yet. And uh, you know what? I'm okay with that, because that was a horrible series. Al continues, You mentioned this episode about having an opinion that puts you on, quote, the wrong side of history or something like that. I forget the exact wording, and I'm sure you do too, but it had to do with not caring for Captain Kate Pride. So here's a brief X-related story about me doing the same thing along with some of my comic reading origin. And yeah, I don't remember what I said for the life of me. I say a lot of things, so (laughs) I don't remember this. But Al tells this story. I started reading new comics with Power Pack number 31. And shortly after, I picked up all three X titles during the fall of the Mutant storyline. Uncanny 227, New Mutant 61, and X-Factor number 26. That was the extent of my comic buying until Inferno, and then I went nuts. I I bought virtually all the crossovers. Exterminators, Daredevil, Avengers, Fantastic Four, etc. However, I didn't continue on with most of them except for the Spider-Man books. We had Amazing by Michelini and McFarlane, 
Spectacular by Conway and Busima, and Webb by Conway and Savick. Two of them I continued buying, but the third didn't interest me. Which one was that? Obviously, it was Amazing Spider-Man. You aren't the only one who is sometimes a contrarian. Oh, man, yeah, I think uh, that might put you on the wrong side of history for a lot of Spider-Fans. Um, <laughs> I've, uh, I've gone back to those. I was not collecting Spider-Man during the time here, and so I was uh, very, very put off by trying to collect Spider-Man because, I mean, it was the McFarlane stuff, and uh, that stuff was very spendy back in the early, mid, and even late 90s. I, I was able to get all of it for a song, um, probably within the past 15 years or so, when the the back issue market kind of kind of bombed out, and uh, people were just dumping their entire collections on comic shops and selling them by the pound, and then comic shops didn't want to waste the time by tagging them all, so just threw them into quarter bins, fifty cent bins, dollar bins. So I was actually able to get most of the McFarlane run for less than a dollar a piece. So yeah, I, I was definitely on the wrong side of history then too But uh, yeah, Spectacular and Web Well, Spectacular wasn't bad Spectacular felt relevant to the Spider-Man story Of course, it was an amazing Spider-Man Which was the absolute flagship until Adjective List kicked off And I guess you could uh, it could be argued that that would become the flagship Kind of like when Adjective List X-Men kicked off And that was looked at as the main book And Uncanny was kind of the... The 1A of the X-Men line Web of Spider-Man though Oof that's <laughs> That one's hard to get my uh, My mind wrapped around because that was a That was an iffy book That was not a great book um, I've gone through you know Spidey binges uh, In my time and I've tried to do like Full read-throughs Back when I wasn't you know creating content I would try to do read-throughs of various eras Of various books And uh, I did the Spider-Man thing And Boy, Web of was just not a fun read. It felt like such a slog. Though Conway's might have been better than was it Terry Cavanaugh who took over toward the end? I think it was Terry Cavanaugh, and those were basically unreadable. They were just really, really inconsequential. They were the very definition of just like inventory stories. It's like we found this Terry Cavanaugh script in a in a drawer somewhere. Can somebody draw it? <laughs> and it's like it doesn't matter. What's going on in the rest of the books? It just felt very, very out of place and, and dull by comparison. Now I'm wondering if you ever went back to get those amazing issues, and if so, how much did you get stuck paying for them? <laughs> so uh, once you get to this episode, uh, let us know. Let us know. And uh, it's awesome to hear from you, and it's awesome that you're uh, going through the older episodes here. I, I invite anyone who's going through any of the older episodes, if it's if it's an episode, if you're just skipping around, if you're time traveling, or if it's an episode you might have listened to and maybe listened to again and had new thoughts, please write in. Write in. Let me know. Uh, I'm always cool to talk about, well, anything in the world, really, but uh, as it pertains to the show, any episode, any episode of the show, no matter how old or new, I love talking about them, I love reflecting on them, and I love knowing that there are people out there uh, all around the uh, the archives here checking out different episodes. It's uh, It's a really cool feeling. It's a, it's a super cool feeling. So thank you so much for writing in, Al, and thanks to everybody who wrote in to uh, take part in this episode. And uh, if you would like to take part in a future episode, I would invite you to write in as well. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. 
Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You could chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary something, something, something listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if while you're there, you like what you hear or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, and all that happy stuff. It would really, really mean a lot to me, and it would really, really help the show. Speaking of which, it helps me and the show that you listen today. You let me be a part of your day today uh, for this extended episode. Uh, we are kicking off a uh, an event, so uh, stands to reason we'll have a little bit of a longer episode, almost an hour. So it means the world to me that you'd uh, hang out with me for this long. I'm not sure I want to be in my company for that long. So thank you all so, so much. And uh, until next time, as always... Talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 212 of X-Labs, where we're continuing our look at the Hellfire Gala, and I come to you today with a, well, kind of a, kind of a bug up my butt. Um, there is something that's going to happen a little bit later on in the gala that, uh, despite my best efforts, was spoiled for me because, well, everybody is spoiling it. Um, I, I wish there was something we could do <laughs> where... Where we could like maybe maybe pump the brakes a little bit before we reveal things that uh, would be a lot more fun and a lot more satisfying if we were to experience them on our own, you know, firsthand. It's to the point where I can't even check messages anymore without uh, without major and minor plot points just being spoiled. It's really very unfortunate, and it's like, I, I, do I have to go completely off the grid in order to enjoy comics anymore? I just don't understand it. We see ourselves... I mean, we're just fans. I'm just a fan. I'm just a person who's marble-mouthedly talking about X-Men comics and hoping that people might want to participate and engage. But uh, 
I don't see myself as a news outlet. And uh, we X-Men fans, we comic fans, we're not news outlets. We're not breaking news. The comics themselves are doing that, and we do have... Like them or hate them, we do have a comics press. Let them do all these spoilers. Can we just please not? You know, I'd really like to enjoy these things the way they're meant to be enjoyed. It's uh, really quite unfortunate, and um, I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling at this point. Uh, Just be a little bit more considerate with your spoilers, is all I'm trying to say. Now, with my belly aching out of the way, let's get into today's issue. This is X-Force Volume 6, Number 20. At an August 2021 cover date, the story is called The Secret Garden, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Cassara. Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Basso, Amaro, White, Sobolski, cover price $3.99 American, and went on sale June 2nd of 2021. Now, of course, this is uh, the X-Force chapter, which... Looks like it's going to bleed into the Wolverine chapter, kind of, kind of the Percy corner of our uh, of our X line here, and uh, we got uh, X Force acting as security. So we open with Quentin Quire welcoming some guests to the gala, and as mentioned, uh, X Force they are security or bouncers for the event, and you know, looking at X Force, I get that, right? I get that as a concept. I get that as a uh, a good use of their uh, of their more black ops team, I suppose. But at the same time, I I don't really see them being completely cool with it. You know, of course, Wolverine might not want a party. Uh, Sage, well, we'll get to Sage when we get to Sage, but, like, wouldn't Quentin Quire rather be inside causing trouble? Hobnobbing, you know, dancing with uh, whichever cuckoo that he's with right now? I don't know. Just seems, seems a little, uh... Seems a little convenient. They just stick them in this little corner. Anyway... We see the Fantastic Four and Captain Marvel walk past him. Uh, they arrived, and they're okay. Then Iron Man flies up, just like we saw in Marauders. Uh, Tony refuses to wear the Krakoan corsage, and he's uh, wearing his psychic dampening shades. Uh, really not sure why we needed to see this scene twice, but what do I know? Um, maybe it'll come back around. Um, maybe they really just wanted to drive the point home that there are people who are wary of the mutants. Now, it's worth noting here, I didn't realize Tony went back to the mustache uh, instead of the goatee. And, you know, big big props to Josh Kassar here, who makes Tony look not like a creep with a mustache, which is pretty great. Now, whatever the case, Tony and Quentin clash here. Uh, Stark is really not interested in playing along or playing nice. Our scene shifts to Sage, and she's checking in with Wolverine. Now, he is with that weirdo Shi'ar guy from Marauders. He's checking in on that package that Emma Frost wasn't expecting and didn't ask for. We see that it's a whole lot of Shi'ar logic diamonds. Now, these diamonds are used as data storage for Cerebro. We learned that back when Forge was tasked with creating it, uh, or the whole infrastructure, back during Hoxpox. Now, Logan tells Sage that Christian Frost will be taking the diamonds back to Krakoa and to the Cerebro Cradles, And that's something we probably ought to put a pin in, uh, because there's no way this won't be coming back around. Um, Part of me wonders why they had to, like, actually put them on the Marauder to sail back to Krakoa. Can't you just walk them through a gateway? I don't know. Maybe that's what they did. I don't know. Next, Domino checks in. 
and she's awkwardly standing like four feet away from the Terra Verde ambassadors and dignitaries. It's, uh, like I said, it's, it's awkward. Um, she's like literally standing right there talking about them, saying they're acting funny, while most definitely being within earshot. And, and there will be a reason why she's able to get away with this, but we'll get there when we get there. Uh, but just looking at this panel, it, it almost feels like a throwback to like a Rob Liefeld panel where it's like you got to get everybody in there. It doesn't matter how they're in there. It doesn't make any sense that they'd be in such a formation, but... They're there anyway. Anyway, the diplomats, they're not reacting to Domino because they are basically, at this point, telefloronic zombies. And we're going to dig deeper into that, but of course that is a callback to the Terra Verde story wherein Beast really showed himself to be quite the piece of garbage. Now, he is, of course, a piece of garbage with Krakoa's best interest at heart, or at least he thinks so, but a piece of garbage nonetheless. Now, Terra Verde, if you don't remember, had this telefloronic tech... Now, this might prove to be competition to the Krakoan Magic Meds and maybe upset the apple cart in as much as the, uh, the amount of pull and global sway that the Krakoans would wield. Now, he mucked with the tech. You know, Beast was not happy. He mucked with the tech, and it somehow took over the entire country of Terra Verde, infecting all of its people. And uh, we find out that, at present, Beast is basically ruling over this infected nation, uh, keeping them docile and happy-looking. It's... Very bizarre, very creepy. It's very current year beast. Now, Domino's there. She asks for instructions. She's like, what am I supposed to do with these people? And beast is there with Sage, and he tells her to stand down. He suggests that, uh, it, you know, don't question me. <laughs> don't press the issue, because Beast is, uh, he's kind of a dick. Now, Domino stomps away, annoyed that uh, she'd been put in her place in the X-Force hierarchy. She's, you know, nothing more than, than muscle at this point, and she is not entirely pleased with that. Now, Beast leaves the point, at which time Sage and Domino continue their chat. Sage is a bit upset that she's all dressed up with nowhere to go, and, uh... I mean, yeah, that kind of begs the question why she got all jumbo carnationed up if all she's gonna do is sit in the same old station that she always does. I don't know. Uh, Domino enters the gala and assures her that she isn't missing much here, and I take it that we're supposed to be in, like, absolute awe and wonderment of this full-page spread of partygoers, but, I mean, at this point, we've already seen it, so it kind of lacks any real punch. Though, it does provide us with so with what might be the only on-panel shots of some of the Krakoans in their stupid formal wear. Uh, we do get to see Rachel, who looks like she's literally trying to hang Amazing Baby. Like, a little bit of awkward uh, composition there, uh, where it's almost like she is holding him up by the throat. Uh, Dr. Doom and Dr. Strange are uh, hitting it off pretty well. They're having drinks. It's kind of odd. Uh, there are also a bunch of Madrox dupes serving as waitstaff, which seems kind of wrong, but, I mean, this is uh, the current year Krakoa, and uh, I guess a Madrox is as good as anything, so whatever. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Characters we'll be paying attention to include Wolverine, Sage, Kid Omega, Beast, and Domino. We go back to comics, and we've got Beast awkwardly introducing the Terra Verde delegates to the partygoers. All seems to be going well until he walks them past Emma and Charles, and uh, they both seem a bit suspicious, and of course with pretty good reason. Charles questions what Hank is up to, to which Hank responds that this might be one of those situations that Xavier might be better off not knowing, which was apparently part of their deal when Beast took the helm of X-Force. I guess this would give Xavier a little bit of plausible deniability on some of their uh, more, uh, I don't know, unpleasant activities. 
Xavier begrudgingly accepts this answer. And Beast is like, hey, come on, have I ever let you down before? And Xavier, who still looks like a slot machine vomited on him, uh, says, no, you haven't, at least not yet, anyway. Beast walks by, Xavier and Emma then look at each other, with the uh, latter seeming quite bothered. Uh, Xavier might look bothered as well, but, you know, he's got a giant helmet on, so we really can't see his eyes. Beast then checks in with Sage, who informs him that their garden is growing. And I'm guessing this is conveniently tied into Terra Verde, because Terra Verde, Terra Verde, Terra Verde, Terra Verde. Beast then eats what looks like something that would be the result of a goldfish mating with an octopus, while Emma Frost glares at him. From here, we get an info page, and it's uh, basically Beast justifying all of his actions, and it's, uh, it's all quite insane. We go back to comics. We got Wolverine checking in on some movement that he'd noticed on the southern shore of Mykonos, and it's Deadpool. And I almost want to stop right here. Uh, not because I don't like Deadpool. I, I do quite like Deadpool. Uh, we've talked about him quite a bit. I'm just not sure how Percy is going to write Wade. And I'm, at this point, I'm not really sure I want to find out. But, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Let's press on. Deadpool, he's upset that he didn't get an invite to the gala, which kind of plays into his feelings, you know, being left out of all things X, which we discussed at length way back during episode 101 of this program. Now, Deadpool, he proclaims himself as being a mutant, and Wolverine corrects him. <laughs> Deadpool accepts this, but asserts that, you know, I'm an honorary mutant, and I think that's pretty cute, especially considering how many people think Deadpool actually is a mutant, and that goes for fans and uh, creators alike. Uh, Logan and Wade wrestle around for a bit at this point, Scene shift to the point where Emma has brought Sage a glass of champagne, uh, which, for whatever reason, really freaks her out. Back to the fight. Domino enters the fray and uses her gross Krakoan cannon to burn Deadpool's face off. Then, back to the point, where Emma actually gives Sage the champagne. Um, she waits for her to take a mouthful, then proceeds to inform her that she knows all about Terra Verde, which causes a Sage spit take. Emma makes it clear that what Sage and Beast have done can, and uh, potentially will, lead to some major league headaches and problems for Krakoa. It's not as though she actually cares about the Terra Verdans, right? She doesn't have any sort of moral stance on this. Uh, she just sees this as something that they can't allow to get out. You know, this is really, really bad press for Krakoa if they find out that they're basically... You know, got like a zombie puppets, you know, running a nation somewhere else just to keep them off the uh, keep them off the board insofar as competition for the magic meds. Now, this takes us to our cliffhanger, wherein Beast loses control of the Telefloronics and the Terra Verdans start turning into nasty tree people. And this will be continued in Wolverine number thirteen, which we will get to early next month. Before we close, we do get a mostly blank quote page, and it's from Deadpool, and he suggests that he and X-Force are basically genitalia that would fit cozily inside one another. Alrighty. Um, next episode, the final issue from my May DCBS package. We're going to be talking about Hellions number 12. But first, let's talk X-Force. Um, and as a... I mean, stop me if you heard this one before. Uh, they're really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say here. Um, we get further confirmation that Emma Frost knows a bit more about just about everything going on on Krakoa than we, you know, than we were led to believe, I suppose. 
I'm wondering if somewhere, you know, before this all wraps up, if we're going to get a uh, some sort of a look into Emma's diaries, right? Uh, Emma seems to just know a lot of stuff that's going on here. It might actually help massage things into making sense if we... Uh, if we do see what she knows, how much of what she knows, uh, how long she's known it, and how maybe behind the scenes she's kind of guided Krakoa down a certain path here that, uh, I don't know, that I'd say that we didn't expect, but um, might just be might just serve as like a curveball, right? We think that it's Mora, Magneto, and Charles who are, you know, really the, the architects and the... Uh, Basically the pilots of uh, Krakoa here Putting it on trajectory and getting it to where they think it needs to be Where behind the scenes it might might be Emma Who knows a little bit more about a little bit more And uh, could be very interesting here um, That said, the, the Terra Verde thing isn't wildly interesting um, I did like it as we were reading through it initially here Because I thought it was a, a weird sort of take on... Um, uh, like a different bent of uh, of post-humanity Rather than it being like a, a machine-based uh, post-humanity It's a more uh, organic sort of post-humanity And playing with, you know, things like flowers And and, uh, and just foliage and, and green growth That really ties into Krakoa here It's almost like a missing link Between Krakoan um, science and uh, magic, I suppose To the post-humanity it, it's a strange little link between the two and I, and I liked it when it was introduced Here it's maybe less about moving the story forward And more about just truly illustrating That, uh, you know, Beast is basically irredeemable at this point What he's done to the Terra Verdans is uh, a bit beyond the pale Even for him, which is saying quite a bit uh, Especially these days where he is uh, I mean, we just saw him kill a... Uh, a captive Omega Red just so he can, you know, tinker with his, his sea synth, you know He also killed the royal family of Terra Verde, or the, the prince, I, I suppose It's, yeah, Beast is fairly, he, he, it's gonna be tough to, to walk this back here And it takes me to, um, basically my main takeaway from this issue is that uh, What do you do with Beast? What can we do with Beast here? It, I've been saying this since Almost since we've started this uh, program I feel like Beast is heading toward a redemption arc Because they are really piling on just how awful and sociopathic he is And how little regard he has for not just human life, but any life You know, he is just full-on evil mad scientist at this point Who is, I was going to say he feels like he's above the law But he actually is above the law He's been put above the law and uh, I feel like those chickens have been waiting to come home to roost for quite a while And with every step we take deeper into the sociopathic abyss um, It feels like it's just going to be all that much more difficult to rescue him If, in fact, we are looking to rescue him here We do know that there are you know, Cerebro backups that are less current Which is to say we could perhaps... Dial Beast back, right? We could take him to a, I mean, if we're up to me, a, uh, you know, early 1990s uh, Beast, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but a pre-Hoxpox Beast. You, we could dial him back to that, at least in theory, which is something I'd like to see for a few reasons. Um, first, it would solve this problem. 
in a sense anyway, right? We could have a beast that didn't commit these atrocities here that might have a little bit more, might place a little bit more value on life here. Also, it's uh, making him eat crow a little bit. As we all know, after uh, AVX ended, he went into the past, brought back the, you know, the original five to kind of shock Cyclops back to back to sanity because this was revolutionary Cyclops who was uh, really just a, I mean, no pun intended, he was just seeing red. So Beast went back to the past, brought a younger Cyclops up so the elder could see, you know, what he used to be and the younger could see what he may become down the line. Here, if we do this with Beast, if we dial him back... Which is, of course, not dialing back time, right? All we're doing is rolling him back to an earlier incarnation. He will still have to deal with everything that he did, right? He's still going to have to face all the atrocities. He, he hadn't committed them at this point, at least not mentally, right? So he would still have to know what he became, which is a nice thing to kind of you know put in his face here. And maybe that'll help him to steer a different way. Maybe go kind of polar opposite from the beast we have now. It's funny, I was looking at a uh, message board, which is apparently the only place online you can go to and not be spoiled on comics, if you don't want to be spoiled on comics. But uh, I saw the suggestion, and I do think somebody wrote in and mentioned this somewhere down the line, but that this might not be our regular beast here. This could be Dark Beast. You know, Xavier and Magneto might have figured that the Dark Beast would have been a little bit more better suited to X-Force sort of uh, shenanigans and maybe the more harder-edged, less compassionate beast that they need for uh, this endeavor. And so maybe Hank McCoy, the 616 version, is still in the queue somewhere, right? Maybe he's just not, not been brought back. Maybe he's in stasis. Maybe it's just a... There is that no-dupe rule, right? There is a no-dupe rule, so if we have the AOA Dark Beast, well, then we can't have the 616 regular Beast. So I wonder if uh, perhaps there is something to that. He could be in Beast's regular husk, right? He could be in Hank McCoy's husk, but the Cerebro backup might be for the Dark Beast. Or it might be an amalgamation of the two. Who knows? I mean, would that be a satisfying reveal? Maybe, maybe not. You know, um, it is a little easy. It is a little convenient. But, I mean, with a character like Beast, who has a known doppelganger and has had a known doppelganger for almost 30 years now, I mean, I guess there are worse ways to go about uh, fixing this, right? But we'll put a pin in that for now. Hopefully we'll get a little bit more food for thought as we uh, continue our way through. What else happened here? Um... The Shi'ar Logic Diamonds, they showed up. I have to assume that since we did dedicate a scene in this issue and in Marauders to it, that there's going to be something to that. Something will come out of that. And you guys know me. I'm very, very bored by the Shi'ar. Uh, It's another one of those things that feels like this era may have been leaning a little too far into. It's like we've kind of done the Shi'ar um, a lot. <laughs> not not quite as much as Otherworld or Madripoor, but it's up there. It is up there for sure, but uh, I'm mildly intrigued to see where this might be headed. Um, also, we did get Deadpool here. I know, I know Deadpool's not everybody's favorite flavor, but I enjoy seeing him here. He's really, really good to me in small doses, 
and when he's not uh, attached to a shield agent. So that's a that's a good thing. I I always like having uh, Wade try to try to play nice with the uh, the X family of characters here. You know, trying to proclaim that he is a mutant, or at the very least, an honorary mutant. It, uh, Sadly, it kind of reminds me of me trying to uh, fit in with the rest of the podcasting community. It's like I'm frantically waving my hands over my head saying, Hey, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm a comics podcaster. And I realize that I'm basically just talking to myself. And uh, then I head off into a darkened room and listen to some Tori Amos or something. So, But enough about me. Um, the Deadpool scene here was uh, pretty fun. I had my reservations about Percy writing him, but I think he did a pretty good job. At least I know that Percy doesn't think that Deadpool actually is a mutant, which, I mean, I wouldn't have bet a penny on either direction <laughs> before this issue. But overall, not a bad issue. Um, the event here is very strange. Uh, this is a non-linear story, which may not be for everybody. Uh, I think it's a nice change of pace. Uh, you know, 100 episodes ago, we did X of Swords, and that was 22 parts plus preamble plus postamble. And outside of a few chapters, it had to be read in a certain order in order to get the most out of it. It remains to be seen if that is the case with the Hellfire Gala. I don't know if there are stories we should be reading before the others. I'm just following the list at the end of uh, at the at the end of the comics here because I'm assuming that'll probably be the best way to do it. But overall, I guess I'm having a better time with this than I expected. And I'm most definitely looking forward to our upcoming Hellions chapter. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, the art here was fantastic. Uh, Kasara is a uh, absolutely wonderful artist. It's always a treat to see his work. So anyway, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Uh, before we go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We've got a couple of letters to get to. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Factor number 8. Now he says, your feeling that this plotline has been truncated is very much a forecast for the next issue, which is exceptionally dense. In fact, Paul O'Brien of the X-Axis shared a screenshot of Leah Williams saying she discovered X-Factor was being cancelled with issue 10 whilst writing 9 as part of, the, of his review for issue 9. It's very upsetting to me that such a great book is being cancelled. I hope Williams and Baldeon get to continue working together for the X-Books, but whatever they do, I will be buying it. They made me care about Dak and Dakin, uh, and that's a miracle of comic storytelling in and of itself. Yes, um, you mentioned Paul O'Brien, which means I have to go on a, uh, a Paul O'Brien fanboying um, squee. Uh, Paul O'Brien, for those who don't know, uh, Damien mentioned he's from the X-Axis. Right now he has a site called House to Astonish, which um, I really, really need to catch up on. I'm very far behind on his writings here. Uh, he has been annotating... Everything since uh, House of X number one. Every X Men issue, he's been uh, doing annotations here, referencing uh, you know bits and bobs from uh, X Men continuity and how they are still relevant or how they're being nodded at today. It's really good stuff. Very very dense writing. It's Paul O'Brien, and uh, he is uh, he's wonderful. He's a giant among X Men commentators and fans. Uh, I've been following his work since. The mid-90s. Um, I used to see his work on Usenet. He would do the X-Axis there, which was a weekly uh, comics review with a focus on the X-Men. He would read other books and, and do, like, capsule reviews and sometimes extended reviews for some of the bigger um, non-X things of, a, of any given week. But the primary focus was the, the X-Books, and there were... I don't know if there were less of them back then or about the same. I think it, it always vacillates with the X-Books, but... 
I am such a big fan of Paul O'Brien's work that I, I mean, this is going to sound pathetic, but I actually started a, uh, like a private blog where I collected all that I could find of his uh, x-axis on uh, Usenet and uh, put them in blog post form so I could like revisit them down the line and use them for reference and uh, just enjoy reading them uh, again and again because right now if you try to if you try to use Usenet which is one of the easiest portals to um, to check out the old BBSs is like Google Groups and even that is kind of eh. I mean it's a it's a real pain in the ass to navigate especially if you're going back to the uh, mid to late 90s trying to find things because the search feature is kind of broken and it's so bogged down with spam and porn and just all sorts of stuff that you may not want to see while you're while you're looking for comics material and I mean I'm not here to shame anybody whatever whatever works for you works for you but when I look at Usenet I'm looking for information and uh, it was becoming harder and harder to uh, revisit these x-axis um, uh, Paul O'Brien did start an x-axis website But he didn't collect his uh, earlier work on there It was basically just a He started the site and then everything forward Was on the site until He went off to, to start the House to Astonish podcast With, uh, what's his face? Al Kennedy, I believe uh, I haven't listened to the show in, in quite some time I'm far behind on just about just about everything <laughs> Because I'm always... Uh, I'm always doing this, so I'm far behind on plenty of things. But I went back to those old BBSs, and I would copy and paste into a uh, into a blogspot blog that uh, I kept private because you know it's not my work. I just wanted to enjoy it. I didn't want to publish it and make it seem like it was uh, like I was trying to pass his work off as mine because well nobody would assume my work is his because uh, that would be a <laughs> great insult to his work. But yes, a huge fan of Paul O'Brien. I would recommend everybody uh, check out his work wherever you can find it. X-Axis, House to Astonish. If you are a Usenet person, check that stuff out. Um, really, really fun insights. Um, really conversational tone here. It's intelligent writing that doesn't make you feel stupid when you read it, which is a, a feat in and of itself here. I know, I know a lot of us... Kind of view ourselves as intellectuals, where we try to use the the hundred dollar words to to really drive home the point that we're very very learned and erudite. Hey, there's one right there. But uh, Paul O'Brien will write in a very very intelligent way, but he won't leave you in the dust. It's it's very well done stuff here. And yes, I did see on his site here. I did just check to see the. Uh, the screenshot, and yeah, it's a, a tweet from Leo Williams, and it's uh, it's actually the one that we referenced, I believe, when we discussed X Factor number nine here, where she said she found out that the book was being canceled while she was in the middle of writing that one, which, of course, did explain the post staples truncation. There felt like we were reading two different, two different speeds of story with issue nine. So I guess making the best of an inconvenient situation, right? I can't really hold it against. Against the creative team, it's more a current year comics problem, right? I, I do hope that Williams and Baldion will will uh, do something together again. Um, I mean, nobody's doing anything with Gwenpool, right? Can we get uh, Gwenpool Strikes Back again? Can we do that? I, I'd be down with that. <laughs> I really enjoyed Gwenpool Strikes Back, as everybody knows. So, uh, yeah, I would dig that. And who knows? Like we uh, mentioned a couple episodes ago, I believe, for all we know... 
the trial mag- of Magneto could end and X Factor could come back with a new number one or preferably an issue 11, but uh, probably not. You never know. Fingers crossed, never say never. Here's, uh, here's hoping for the best. But uh, thank you so much for uh, writing in on that, Damien, and uh, facilitating my, uh, my fanboying over Paul O'Brien. Next up, we got Al talking about Marauders number three. We're going way back in the day here. Al says, first of all, I have to give a correction to my previous email. There, after finally reading Dawn of X Volume 3, I gave my thoughts on X-Men number three and New Mutants number three, which you covered in X-Lapsed episodes 25 and 26. Except you didn't cover New Mutants number three, it was Marauders, which would explain why I couldn't remember anything about what you said that issue. I hadn't listened to it yet. I must have gotten the order confused in my head. Hey, it happens to the best of us. I I didn't remember myself, so there's that. Uh, Al continues. Oh well, that works because here's my review of Marauders number three. I forgot it existed. <laughs> Sorry, I remember now you being all excited for Shinobi Shaw. But for me, Sebastian's just okay. Nothing too exciting about him to me. As for Shinobi, well, we are the we are in complete opposites there. I think he could make my top five list of X characters I don't care about at all. And, I mean, Shinobi, to me, I, I don't know so much that I care about him. Uh, I just love the upstarts. Uh, and, you know, the upstarts, in practice, was uh, a missed opportunity, right? But, in concept, I, I just love the idea of the upstarts. I, I love the idea that we have... Mutants, humans, super characters, any sort of character who's just in part of this club trying to rack up points by killing mutants here. It's trophy hunting. It's uh, it's basically big game hunting in the form of taking out mutants. It's not out of fear and or hate in, in some cases. It's about clout, you know? And that's something that exists in real life. People do things simply... I mean, I, I, I don't want to make comparisons like a one-to-one <laughs> on killing people, but... People do do things for clout. And I feel like with the upstarts, an argument can be made that for some of the members of the crew, it's not personal. You know, it's not like, it's like, well, we have to kill this person because they're, they're a mutant and we hate mutants. It's like, it's like, no, I want to kill this person because that one is worth more points than another one. And I just love the idea. I think it's one that they really left money on the table with. Uh, around that time, uh, John Byrne was uh, interviewed this is during his little cup of coffee during the uh, the Jim Lee Wills Protasio era, where he was doing some uh, last minute scripting for uh, Uncanny and uh, Volume Two, and he was interviewed in Wizard Magazine, I believe. I think it was Wizard Magazine issue three, maybe two or three. No, two was a Claremont interview. Three was the Burn interview because. Uh, in the second issue of Wizard, they gave Claremont an interview where he was very, very happy about the direction of the X-Men, and it ended with a blurb saying, uh, in between the time we did this interview and published it, Chris Claremont has announced that he's leaving the X-Books. And then the next issue was the, hey, John Burns back, and I believe like before they even published the issue, it's like, yeah, he left too. So during that interview, he talked a lot about uh, thinking there were too many mutants. And at the time... I mean, that it's almost cute, right? It's almost adorable, considering where we were in 1991 as compared to where we would be at the end of the 90s and even you know to today, where we've got 200,000 mutants living on an island, right? But Byrne was saying that he wanted to 
orchestrate like a New Age mutant massacre, right? He wanted to take out as many mutants that he found as unnecessary or redundant or just, you know, not not relevant anymore. He wanted to take them out. And uh, he thought to do so, he would put together some sort of an event and it would be something like the Mutant Massacre. Well, at that same time, you had the upstarts who were hunting mutants for points. I would have loved it had they actually taken out some mutants. They, if they would have let the upstarts do what their mission statement called for them to do. It would have made them a credible threat. Uh, you could have introduced new characters this way. You could have taken out characters this way. I just see it as a, it's like a utilitarian narrative device where you can get fun stories, but you can also serve a purpose here. If we were looking to wean the numbers down, right, winnow the uh, the mutant numbers down, that's a heck of a way to do it. I would really like to see something like this come back. I've wanted to see it come back at several points in history, at any point in history. Uh, I remember thinking about uh, sending in a pitch for an upstart series when Bill Jemis launched his epic line back around, what, 2003, 2004 or so? 2002, maybe. I don't remember. It's back in the day when he tried launching Epic, uh, trying to get cheap labor (laughs) out of wannabe comic creators. Uh, I actually started putting together a pitch for uh, an Upstarts uh, miniseries where I thought it would be fun to... This was around the time, or a little bit after, when Marvel launched The Brotherhood, right? Now, The Brotherhood, for those who don't know, was a weird street-level take on maybe a Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Uh, it It wasn't great. Um, it was very angsty. It was very, uh, purple. (laughs) It wasn't great. But one of the main gimmicks of that book was that the author was just called X. Nobody knew who the writer was. We all knew it was Howard Mackey, but we didn't have any clarification that it was Howard Mackey. Uh, Howard Mackey at that time had, uh, a lot of bad will, a lot of ill will toward his writing, so uh, I don't know if they decided not to put his name on the book because they did, thought it wouldn't sell with his name on it, or if this was just really a gimmick, you know, and maybe it was a little bit of both. But I was thinking about taking a page out of that and just having this book that would feature the upstarts not called upstarts, called something different. I had a I had a cool name for it, I just don't remember what it was, and I... Uh, the first issue was going to be told like with a first-person perspective, and it was going to be you know just someone watching mutants, someone just taking a look at mutants, and uh, and at the end, I wanted to kill a higher-profile mutant, like a maybe like a, a B-level mutant, you know, someone that no one would see coming. I don't remember which one I chose. Not that it matters at all, uh, but. Uh, it was going to be like this mutant was going to be killed and then you were going to just see points, you know, pop over their head like as though you were playing like a first-person shooter or a, uh, a role-playing game. You were just going to see numbers pop up over their head and it would be, you know, revealed, oh, here are the upstarts, they're back. And this person that we were in the point of view of was going to be Fabian Cortez. You know, I, that was my idea that, uh, that I thought it would be really cool, uh, a nice little sort of kind of deep-cut reveal for... Uh, X-Fans, that they might understand it. They might get the reference here. Uh, not quite the Thunderbolts at the end of Thunderbolts number one revealing themselves as being the Masters of Evil, but, you know, <laughs> something. And uh, I thought it would fit in decently with the epic run here where 
hey, you can either take it or don't. Um, I never got around to finishing it, and I think by the time I actually set my sights on finishing it, Epic had already folded. So what could have been? Maybe one of these days. You, you, never, you never say never in this world. Anyway, Al continues, It probably has to do with our reading the titles back in the early 90s. While the Mutant Genesis era was your intro, it was my jumping-off point. Well, my first jumping-off point. I would jump in and out of the X-Books many times over the years. Sure, I stuck with X-Factor and Excalibur, but the other three had lost me just before the big names jumped ship to form Image. Not only did I miss most of the stories that from that time that featured Shinobi, I even think Fallen Angels number 1 was my first time reading a Quanon story. Well, you know, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because uh, those early Quanon stories were very, very confusing, and, uh, well, Fallen Angels kind of sucked, so it's, uh, I guess it's a either-or sort of a situation there. Anyway, Al wraps up with, that's enough out of me. Next time, my thoughts on X-Labs number 27 and, double-checking, Excalibur number 3. Well, I mean, don't be so sure, because uh, anytime you read Excalibur, you might feel like you missed an issue. But hopefully we'll have it all figured out. But uh, thank you so much for writing in. It really, really means a lot that you're sticking with the uh, with the program as you uh, work your way through the early issues in the Dawn of X uh, run. It really, really means a lot. Thank you. Now, if uh, anybody would like to be a part of the show, write in, say hello, all that good stuff, please, please, I invite you to do so. You can find me several different ways. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. On Instagram, it's 90sXmen. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You could chat us up on Facebook. Our group is 90sXmen. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere. The internet aggregates noise. And of course, while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two. It would really, really mean the world to me. So, I thank you in advance. And uh, while I thank you in advance, I thank you in the present as well. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 213 of X-Lapsed, where this is our June finale. This is the last book in our X-Lapsed short box until the uh, the next shipment arrives, probably in the next, I don't know, week, week and a half or so. But uh, this is going to do it for original recipe X-Lapsed for at least a little while. Now, we are, of course, still at the Hellfire Gala, where we will be for, uh, well, the next... Many, many episodes So uh, let's get into it At least it's Hellions Day That's always a good thing, isn't it? It is Hellions number 12 This had an August 2021 cover date The story's called Gate Crashing Written by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia Colors by David Curiel Letters VCs Ariana Marr Designs Tom Muller, Head of X's Hickman Edits Amaro Basso, White, Sabolski. Cover price, four bucks This one went on sale June 2nd of 2021 Now we open with our Hellion VIPs preparing to attend the Hellfire Gala. Now, uh, only Mr. Sinister, Quanon, and Havoc seem to have been invited, and the rest of the Irregulars just sit there and watch. Now, it's worth noting, they don't look all that bummed out, or, or like pouty, about not getting invites, and, uh, you know, uh, they're probably right to feel that way. <laughs> they don't seem to really care that they're not invited, it's just kind of a thing that is. Havoc then pops in, and he's wearing a uh, ridiculous Asian-inspired costume. Uh, it's a riff on his, you know, normal power circles, like we've seen in a lot of his costumes, but uh, with a kimono of sorts. He asks the crew how he looks. Nanny suggests that he looks like a boy who needs attention, which, yeah, kind of. Uh, Grey Crow follows up, stating that he looks like a boy who might be angry at his father, and, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I chuckled at both. And now I'm starting to wonder if maybe Corsair and the Jammers will show up. Eh, you never know. Orphan Maker thinks out loud, and he mentions that, uh, you know what, a gala sounds like fun. You know, it might be fun to do this thing. Havoc responds, commenting on how many parents Orphan Maker has killed, and how that might make him a bit of a bummer at this global soiree. Quanan enters the scene and urges the Irregulars to continue their training while they were off partying and hobnobbing. And Quanon is wearing a dress with a neckline that plunges below her belly button, like well below her belly button, and uh, is adorned with pink flowers of the perhaps psychic variety. And yeah, I mean, this really is a low plunging uh, outfit here. She might actually be able to give birth through the gap if she needed to. So I wonder if we can let Jim Lee off the hook now for his Nympho Ninja costume just yet. Uh, now, whatever the case... Grey Crow really seems to like what he sees, basically because he can see most of it. From here, our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, our characters are what they always are. It's Havoc, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, and Mr. Sinister. Now, Sinister, Alex, and Quanon leave the Irregulars behind to head to the gala. Wildchild and Orphan Maker have a wrestling match, uh, while Empath and Nanny look on. Grey Crow downs a bottle of some sort of booze before declaring that, you know what, screw it, invites or no, they're gonna go to the gala. And so, off to the gala, they and we go. Once there, we see Mr. Sinister chatting up Captain America and Iron Man. And in a wonderfully cute bit, he asks them which one is which. (laughs) 
he's like, I know I'm talking to Captain America and Iron Man, but which one is which? Uh, he, he claims to not own a television, and so he's, he's not sure. Betsy and Quanon have an awkward bumping into. Um, you know, I think, but I can't be sure, but these two might have a history, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Havoc is also being awkward. Uh, he's appealing to the uh, slot machine vomit victim, Professor X, to see about getting Madeline Pryor resurrected. And he kind of gets brushed off. Xavier tells him he ought to hang out with his friends, the uh, party-crashing Hellions. You know, leave me alone. Go be with your people. Which, I mean, wonderfully classist on this mutant island. Then we've got Nightcrawler. At least I think it's Nightcrawler. I'm I'm sure it's Nightcrawler. It's just not a good take on him visually. He rushes over to the Hellions to drunkenly tell them that they've been on his mind a lot of late. And while in fairness, he did provide the mostly blank quote pages for the first ten or so issues of the series, right? From here, we shift back to Mr. Sinister, who's now schmoozing with Thor and Black Panther, and he's sharing some trademark sassy banter with them. It's all very fun. Then Nanny wobbles up, which... (laughs) Once again, freaks the hell out of Sinister. This never, ever fails to get me. It's just like Sinister with like one leg up going like, ah! it's very, very funny. And it's it's like low-hanging fruit here, but it gets me every single time. Nanny then fills T'Challa and Thor in on how Sinister is an abductor, an abuser, and a murderer of children. Sinister frantically tries to do a little bit of damage control here by asserting that, uh, you know, that was a different version of Sinister that did all the nasty stuff. That was a bad one, not me. Don't worry about it. I'm a good guy. But by now, his chatter pals have excused themselves to go mingle with other partygoers, so uh, the conversation has been ruined. We jump over to the bar where Grey Crow joins Quinnon for a drink. Then, Quentin Quire wanders over to bounce John and the rest of the Irregulars out of the party. Quinnon says that the entire team of the Hellions are her plus one. Quentin kind of balks at this uh, before Quinnon threatens to tell Phoebe Cuckoo what QQ really thinks of her dress. I'm not sure why this would be an insult to Phoebe necessarily. I mean, these awful designs are all jumbo carnations, and really, who cares if his feelings are hurt? I mean, he's, he's a real crappy designer, isn't he? Look at these costumes. Whatever the case, this works, and uh, Quentin leaves them be. He says Phoebe's dress is a little too Nurse Ratchet. Uh, I'm guessing from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I've never seen. I'm sure that's a surprise to everybody listening. And I suppose I could just say we've all got our fetishes or anti-fetishes, so whatever. Next up, we join Wild Child, who has just gotten a glimpse of his ex-lover, Aurora. Now this, if you're not aware, goes all the way back to some early 90s Alpha Flight, which... Tell you what, I'm kind of surprised would ever get a reference in a current year book because that's a kind of a deep cut. Now, at the time, in the early 90s, Wild Child was far less feral and not quite as scary looking. He was more of a, uh, a normal, you know, handsome uh, 1990s hero of sorts. Now, he approaches Aurora in an attempt to reconnect, but she resists. Nothing personal. Right? Uh, she just claims that back when they were together, she wasn't in a good place. And she would really prefer not to revisit that. She doesn't want to remember that part of her life so much. Nothing personal against Kyle. It's more, it's, it's one of those, it's not you, it's me sort of things. From here, info page. Now, the Stepford Cuckoos tell the story of Aurora and Wild Child's weird romance, which I would imagine would be very helpful for those unfamiliar with those old Alpha Flight issues, which... I'd guess would be most people. This is a pretty deep cut. Um, 
great use of an info page here. Really, really good stuff. We jump back to comics, and it looks like Havoc is trying to, uh, I don't know, work out a deal with a pimp. Oh, wait, that, that, wait, that's Magneto? Oh, come the F on. There's no way Magneto would be seen in public wearing a flamboyant pimp outfit. Okay. Anyway, Alex is, once again, appealing for Madeline Pryor's resurrection. Magneto blows him off just as Polaris wanders over. Magneto fills her in on the Maddie chat, assuming that Alex just wants his ex-lover back. Now, Alex denies this. Claims it's more about him really wanting some clarity on the situation, which... Huh. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Anyway, Lorna drags Alex away to get a drink. Speaking of drinks, back to the bar where Grey Crow and Conan are talking about... <sighs> okay. Three guesses as to what or who Quanan might be talking about. Anybody? Anybody? Um, well, if uh, you guessed Betsy Braddock, well, then you've probably been reading X-Men comics long enough to be just as sick of the Betsy Quanan thing as I am. Now, uh, Quanan reflects on having that masterminded dream over the past few issues where she killed Betsy every single day for 30 years, which evidently got a lot of anger out of her system, so... Uh, can we maybe never, ever mention it again? Or at least take a few issues off. Maybe? Maybe? I don't know. From here, Wildchild busts in demanding a drink. Off to the side, Mr. Sinister offers Franklin Richards some help with his problem, which is pretty cute and totally something Sinister ought to be doing. He then gets into a contentious conversation with fellow Quiet Council member Exodus. Now the chat is interrupted by Nanny getting rip-roaringly drunk through a hole in her egg suit. Back at the bar, John tries to get Kyle to settle his tea kettle a little bit here, uh, you know, trying to be a wild child's keeper of sorts. And Quinan mentions that uh, John's a pretty good friend, and uh, John's like, well, I don't got many of them, so I gotta do what I can for those I've got. Off to another side, Orphan Maker looks to be completely smashed. He's not, because throughout this issue, he'd been begging Empath for a taste of his champagne or whatever he's drinking, but fearing Nanny's wrath, Empath wouldn't give him any. Instead, he just makes Call Me Pete feel a bit tipsy via the use of his empathic powers, which, I mean, I don't know if that's any better or worse than just letting him have a sip of uh, whatever... uh, whatever alcoholic beverage you're uh, imbibing in. Next, we go back to Alex and Lorna. Now, Lorna says it's sweet that Alex still cares for Maddie, but tells him that uh, he should trust the uh, the process of the Quiet Council, trust their decision-making. Uh, then, the thinking-he's-drunk orphan maker jumps onto Alex's back and talks a lot about how he loves bananas. And hey, you know, um, we don't kink shame on this show, uh, unless it's about airbags or quicksand, so bananas are perfectly fine. Havoc buries his head in his hand, embarrassed that Lorna is seeing him with the rest of his irregular Hellions uh, partners. And he mentions, you know, Lorna says, trust the Quiet Council, right? Which seems like something that a lot of the um, better connected Krakoans might say, those who are not in bad positions, those who are aesthetically pleasing, those who are uh, the top of the, you know, the upper crust of Krakoa. We've talked a little bit about this during our New Mutants conversations here, that it looks like there's a bit of a class system here, right? So Alex, he's saying, you tell me to trust the council, but how can I trust a group of people who decided to put me with the Hellions, right? 
Havoc and Wild Child, Havoc and Orphan Maker, Havoc and Nanny, Havoc and Great Crow, I mean, Havoc and anybody on this team, it, it does seem weird, right? Uh, it would stand to reason that Alex would be like, why would you put me with these loonies? There has to be a reason for this, and how can I trust the people who aren't telling me the reasons for this? From here, we jump over to Sinister. Now, he's watching Nightcrawler drunkenly pour all over Nanny's drunken shell. Now, he's babbling about his new Way of X culture, which, uh, yeah, I can't wait to read more about in the Way of X chapter. Next, Kyle decides that he is going to confront Aurora. Unfortunately for him, he pops over right as she's making out with Dakin, Dakin, and so Wildchild immediately wants to fight. Dakin, Dakin, he ain't having it at all. He's not looking for a fight. He's, uh, he just wants to spend some time with his girl. Now, the rest of the Hellions manage to wrangle Wildchild down. Uh, Orphan Maker dives in, still talking about bananas. Now, before we know it, it's a full-blown Hellions brouhaha. Nanny is rumbling a little bit, and she also attempts <laughs> to shiv Mr. Sinister with a broken bottle, which... Oh, come on, that's great. That is great. Uh, Empath is then briefly reunited with some of his former Frost Hellion teammates... Uh, Orphan Maker, Quanon, Grey Crow all try to hold Wild Child down, and at this point, Pimp Nito intervenes and uh, gives the Irregulars the boot. From here, we get an info page, and it's more cuckoo chatter. It's basically a recitation of the events of the past few pages. A much less good use of an info page, if I'm being honest. We go back to comics, and the Hellions, minus Sinister and Havoc, they're returning to their Krakoan base via a gateway. The uh, coffee pooper, I think it's, is it Fauna or Flora or whichever one that is that poops coffee? He pops his head in to let the team know that the fireworks are about to begin, and so they look at the sky. Now, we see nothing, though we can probably assume that they see something. Psychic fireworks, perhaps? Uh, I mean, they're on Krakoa. The gala is on Mykonos. So, I mean, they're not in the same place. So I'm assuming that there's some sort of frosty uh, telepathy at play here. We wrap up this issue with the Hellions confronted by Mr. Sinister with a huge scar going across his forehead. Huh. Hmm. Well, of course, we've read the solicits, which kind of spoiled this reveal. But, uh, I guess we could play along, but, uh, I mean, we already know. We already know what this is. We gotta assume that this is the Sinister who we thought died during X of Tens while gathering the DNA from Tarn the Uncaring in the gang. The Locust Vile, I think they were called. We did see Sinister get, like, basically slashed to ribbons here. And so we see him stitched together. We gotta assume it's the same guy. But that is where we leave it. Now, next episode, uh, yeah, it won't be for a little bit because we gotta wait for the DCBS June order to arrive. But then... It's Excalibur. So we come back after the long wait, and it's going to be Excalibur Day. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, also, we will take a look at the Marvel solicits for August of 2021 next time out. But for now, let's talk about this issue of Hellions. Well, it'll probably come as no surprise that uh, this is my favorite chapter of uh, the Hellfire Gala at this point. We still have a couple of chapters that I'm looking forward to. I am looking forward to Way of X, of course, and uh, also seeing how X Factor wraps up. That'll be uh, those will be fun issues, I think. Um, but this one was this one was really good. This uh, brought me right back to our little um, the Hellions two-parter from X of Swords, X of Tens. You know, um, 
kind of on trend for like what the story's about, but kind of in its own world too. So yes, we get a lot of gala stuff. I mean, they're at the gala. We see a lot of stupid costumes. We see a lot of weird conversations. But it's all in service of uh, of this wonderful series. Everything here, everything here is like a value added measure, and it's just so so good. Um, so where do we even begin? Um, let's start with some theories about uh, Inferno. Okay, Inferno. We are still kind of we have an idea where it's headed, of course, right? Um, by now, I think. Uh, the cover for the first issue and all, like, 75,000 variants of that cover have been shared online and spoiled for a lot of people. So we kind of know what the gimmick's going to be here. It's very likely going to be Mystique and Mora-focused here. But I don't think that's going to be the end of it. Because, uh, you know, we've got the Quiet Council here who won't bring back certain characters. Destiny, of course, is the biggie, right? Destiny will not be brought back for reasons that... We know, and the people in the know know, but uh, the wider Krakoan populace doesn't. We also have someone who won't be brought back in Madeline Pryor. So, well, Madeline Pryor goes right back to the original Inferno. So if the Council won't bring back these characters, maybe Mr. Sinister will. I mean, it would tie neatly into the original Inferno, and as far as the Sinister and Maddie involvement... And it would also play into the current year Mystique situation. Now, Sinister, if we go way back to Hoxpox, he knew from the start that he was basically being played or used by Xavier and Magneto. And to this point, he's been playing along. I mean, he has his own designs, of course. He has his own secrets that he's keeping, of course. Just even tying back to the X of Swords event, where he was getting DNA secretly collecting DNA from uh, folks who are basically off the grid as far as Cerebro and Krakoa are concerned here. So he definitely has his own plans here. He definitely has his own designs and secrets, and he also, as we found out uh, last issue of Hellions, he's got his own black market clone ranch to go along with his regular Bar Sinister black market clone farm. I mean, he can basically do what Cerebro's doing. So I do wonder if uh, Sinister and Madeline are going to play into this Inferno thing, which, on one hand, makes me very, very happy, because I think that's a very interesting story to play with. On the other hand, um, this might just be me, but I think that that kind of spells the end of this series. Like, this series will all have been in service uh, of setting up the Inferno event, or setting up aspects of the Inferno event. Which, I mean, if we go back to the original um, mission statement of the Hickman era, it was that, and I don't remember where I read this, but I've read it several places. I don't know if this is like a game of telephone or if this is actual legit information, but before the initial sales figures came in for the Dawn of X books and before the COVID hiatus, uh, the original plan was for shorter... Ongoings, you know. I mean, this is Marvel, so I mean, <laughs> that's kind of just the way they do comics these days. But I remember reading that each of the flagship series were only going to go about ten to twelve issues. Then they were going to be replaced by another slew of uh, of series that would also go a short period of time. None of these were supposed to be uh, series that were going to cover the entire run, basically. So. 
Hellions being a second wave book, a second wave Dawn of X book, it could stand to reason that this was all put in place to serve this Inferno story. We know Inferno's been in the works for a long time. Inferno got a mention during a very early Sinister Secrets. So, I mean, since day one almost, Inferno has been on the horizon. So, I'm guessing that Hellions was always supposed to be in service of the Inferno event. Which, I mean, if it can fulfill its uh, its mission statement, that's fantastic. Though, uh, and I mean, I'm... I'm wildly speculating here. If uh, if this book does go away, I will very, very, very much miss it. But at this point, if the uh, theories I just floated play out in any sort of way, I don't believe that Hellions will make it through Inferno. Now, sticking with Maddie for a bit here, we do get Havoc going to you know two of the the biggest movers and shakers on the island to ask about her resurrection, and I like the way that they play this off. Because, I mean, you look at Havoc, and it's easy to write him off as being unstable and also lovelorn, right? They can excuse the questions. They can dismiss his questions as being fueled by emotion rather than logic. So, Xavier can be like, yeah, dude, you're just, you're just hurting. You just want your ex-old lady back, right? Magneto can basically say the same thing. You just, you know, you miss your girlfriend here. You want her back. Which is great, because it, like, purposefully ignores the root of Havoc's concern and his question here. And when Lorna drags him away, and she even tries to, like, lampshade it and kind of uh, prop him up a little bit by just suggesting that it's, it's really nice of him to want Madeline brought back. And he, you know, he stops and he thinks, and he's like, it, that's not even really it. I, I just want an answer. I want to know about the process. I want to understand... The train of thought I like that a lot Because it's not something That is Immediately evident Because I mean even us reading it We just saw him bang a uh, robot version of Madeline Pryor We saw him in his bondage gear We saw him in uh, Basically as Like a lovesick Submissive lover So even us looking in We see it as being more uh, emotional or, or carnal, I suppose. But he kind of pumps the brakes on that. And he's like, no, I, I just want to know the reasons. I want to know what's what. And Lorna's reply that, you know, hey, the Quiet Council makes their decisions and we should just trust them to do so. Another really, really good bit here because it just makes Havoc realize, how can I trust these people who have put me in this group? We don't know why he's there yet. Right? We've, we've got a few theories. Maybe he's in there as a mole. Maybe he's in there with some sort of uh, subconscious suggestion where he's going to be the Quiet Council's eyes and ears, maybe keeping an eye on Sinister. It's, we don't know. We don't know. We also don't know if Havoc has any sort of darkness in him. We did see him kind of flip out in the first issue of this series where he almost killed a human. So, I mean, that's dicey, of course, especially with the Krakoan commandments. But at the end of the day, if we were to slide Havoc into the X-Force book and he did the same thing, he'd be getting a commendation rather than uh, being paired with the rest of the uh, former villains and irregulars in the Hellions. So he wonders how he can trust the Council, and he certainly doesn't trust the Council in as far as not bringing Madeline Pryor back. It's all very subtly done. Really, really good stuff here. What else we got? Um, We got Wild Child and Aurora. Which, I mean, basically, 
not a whole lot to talk about there. It's we saw what we saw. I love that it's a callback to a uh, not often mentioned uh, run of comics. Those uh, early '90s Alpha Flights—they're certainly <laughs> they're certainly not the greatest. Uh, and I would assume a lot of folks who are, even even folks who are familiar with Alpha, Alpha Flight uh, probably don't know a whole heck of a lot about that era. Uh, you talk to folks about Alpha Flight, it's usually the burn stuff, right? That's usually what we all kind of know inside and out. We might know some of the early Jim Lee stuff, even though those stories were a little body horrorific and weird. But uh, for the post 1990s stuff, uh, outside of issue 106, of course, you don't really get too many callbacks to that. So that was really, really cool to see here. I like that uh, Dakin Dakin is showing some maturity and not really wanting to throw down, uh, where Wild Child is just. Uh, He's got that alpha-beta in him, right? He he wants to be the big dog, as we saw during his mastermind uh, illusions. But he's not. But he still feels like he has to prove that he is. It's really good stuff. Nice progression on him there. And again, using established lore to do so. It's really wonderful. A very, very traditional uh, X-Men storytelling in this very untraditional uh, era and book. So... Very, very well done. But I think that's pretty much all I have to say about the story here. Um, the art here was really good. Nightcrawler looked a little weird. I wasn't immediately sure it was Nightcrawler until, you know, it was clear that it was Nightcrawler. Also, I mean, Magneto in the pimp outfit. Why? I, I, I guess I just don't understand fashion. I look at these costumes for the most part and, uh, well, I just kind of cringe. And uh, thinking that Magneto would put on that kind of a costume is just uh, maybe that's why he's going to go on trial. Maybe he is a uh, maybe he is breaking laws of fashion. I, I maybe he kills Jumbo Carnation for making him look like a damn idiot. I I don't know. We'll see when we get there. But uh, that's all I got to say about this wonderful issue of Hellions. But uh, before we cut out of here, we do have some mailbagging to do. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marauders number nineteen. He says, I've exhausted Marvel Unlimited, so I'm back to in the future listening to episodes about comics that I actually bought. I'm really not enjoying the Madripoor storyline in Marauders. I want to see them swashbuckling around the oceans, not constantly on one island. Amen. Amen. You know, when, uh, when Marauders was launched, and I was kind of on the fence about even buying it in the first place until my X-Men completionism kicked in and it was like, okay, yeah, it's an X-Book, I gotta get it. So when I did, I was immediately brought in with the idea that this was going to be a more globetrotting sort of a sort of series, where we were going to get stories all around the globe, right? We were going to get stories in every every little island, every little country, every big country, just uh, all over the world. This was going to be like the international book where we're going to rescue refugees, broker some uh, black market deals, we're going to build the melting pot of Krakoa. I thought it was just going to be really fun. And then here we are, two years into the run, and it's all Madripoor. It's uh, underwhelming. And, I mean, we've we've posited theories about why it's Madripoor, thinking that maybe this is just a safe place to be because no one else in Marvel had claimed it yet, and maybe Hickman's like, yeah, do whatever you want on Madripoor, I don't have any kind of designs on it. I don't know. It is disappointing, though, because I feel like we're leaving a lot of money on the table. We're selling the premise of Marauders short by 
you know, it's not even about like the high seas, right? It's not even about the boat, really. It's just like they're on Krakoa or they're on Madripoor uh, with very, very little otherwise. It's uh, unless they're guest starring in another book where we'll just see them like bobbing on the surf, you know, who knows? Now, uh, Damien continues. The most interesting part of this story was the choice of the Morlocks and your fake-ass comics history on Pliss. I was there for that original Morlock storyline with Gene's tentacles and the rotating artists, but I was not familiar with any of the other appearances. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I had fun doing the, the Bliss research there. Uh, for folks who might not have listened to that episode or who haven't heard anything with, uh, with a fake-ass comics history segment in it, I just take a look at some of the lesser-known characters when uh, they pop up in the books to give a little bit of a bio, a little bit of an introduction to them, and also uh, kind of jog my own memory. And well, Actually, in the case of Bliss, educating me entirely on a character's maybe short, tiny backstory. Um, Bliss was a Morlock, of course, uh, with Mask, and I know I've read the issues where she first appeared. I just couldn't remember them for the life of me, and I actually... Wouldn't have even known that this was the same character until really stopping to think about it. Uh, Damien continues, Claremont seemed to like the body horror and alien references. See also the brood. So you can see where he got bliss from, but I'm amazed that anyone thought to bring her back. Having said that, isn't it interesting that the group of Morlocks who were selected were mainly from the era where Mask was the leader of the Morlocks? That must be leading somewhere. It could be. It very well could be, unless they just saw them as, uh, you know, these are the people who would follow Mask, you know, and uh, we have Mask in the story, and we do need to have some folks with him, so they just did uh, a little bit of their due diligence and decided to, you know, put them back together. I don't know that Mask has any sort of designs on usurping any sort of power. He seems kind of content, right? He seems kind of happy to be the uh, the miracle surgeon at the uh, the Maura McTaggart general on a... Uh, on Madripoor, and also being kind of the leader of the Rio Verde sect of Morlocks. So I, I, I wonder, I wonder. Uh, Damien continues, As for your discussion of Sabretooth's fate and the Morlocks' knowledge of it, I'm not surprised that the Morlocks know where Sabretooth is at all times. He's pretty much their arch enemy. Don't forget the two Liefeld guys you mentioned first appeared in a Sabretooth story. Now that's a reference to people knowing that uh, Sabretooth is in the hole. I questioned whether or not people would know about that. Even people on Krakoa would know about, you know, the Krakoan Phantom Zone of sorts. And I still, I still have trouble reconciling that in my head, that they would know about that and they'd be okay with it. It's, uh, you know, I hate using the term slippery slope because I feel like it's like kind of a go-to for us uh, fake-ass intellectual types. But Sabretooth, arch-enemy arch or not, you see him in the Phantom Zone, and you might be satisfied with that as an enemy of his and as someone who fears him or has a, a, you know, a contentious history with him. That might give you a bit of satisfaction or a feeling of justice, but the rules of Krakoa are so nebulous and so um, on a case-by-case -case basis that you might worry about uh, being in those shoes yourself, right? What happens if... Uh, what happens if you don't have friends in the right places and you do something wrong and suddenly you're, uh, you know, you're Joseph K. from the trial, uh, from uh, Kafka, you know, you're just arrested and put into stasis. And I don't know. I, I feel like if the, uh, the Krakoan Phantom Zone was widely known, there would be a bit of an uprising. 
there would be some sort of a uh, confrontation or a boiling point. I, I think it was in the the Black Cat two-parter we looked at where she mentioned something about the Krakoan hole, and it was just like, how does someone who doesn't even live on Krakoa know about it? It seems... I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing that it's probably editorial oversight Or just maybe not thinking too hard about it uh, Like I mentioned, I spend way too many hours with each of these books every single day So it's uh, likely that this is a Chris problem or an X-lapsed problem Where I'm just uh, kind of mulling over and nitpicking uh, Some details that perhaps I ought not because it's only spoiling the fun Anyway, Damien continues I also don't understand why being in a sewer made Kitty sick she spent a lot of times in sewers and old stories and seemed perfectly at home. Yes, she was sick when she first visited the Morlocks, but that was due to plague or pestilence rather than disgust. Also, she surely phased through any microbes. I mean, I think the entire X-Men lived with the Morlocks after leaving San Francisco when Freedom Force first appeared. Are they trying to convince us that Madripoor has worse sewers than New York? It seems unlikely. Well, the sewers of Madripoor are lawless. The toilets of Madripoor are lawless. So maybe uh, maybe the lawlessness has something to do with it. Who knows? Uh, Damien continues, By the way, I like to imagine that the fire and ice sculpture was a series of tableau from the romance novels Pyro used to write back in the 1980s. Is there any consensus on who they were dragging with the fire and ice stuff? I'm choosing to believe that it's aimed at George R.R. R. Martin and not the Giffen and DiMatteis. I'd almost forgotten about the fire and ice sculpture here. Uh, this was the distraction tactic uh, that the Marauder pulled to get the uh, UN boats to not notice that Kitty was diving into the drink. And I mentioned that it was weird that we didn't get to see what the sculptures were um, and uh, automatically assumed that it was something pornographic because why else wouldn't we see it? Gotta assume that could have been a very fun page for, uh, I think it was Matteo Lali to draw and for us to uh, to look at. I guess that's just another item for our uh, X-Men Unsolved Mysteries uh, Usenet posts. So we'll uh, maybe one of these days we'll find out, but probably not. I'd like to thank you so much for writing in on that, Damien, and for uh, for time traveling to, to keep up with this show. It really, really means a lot. Uh, next, we've got a letter from Jesse regarding the Hellfire Gala. And it reads... Good afternoon, Chris. Please wake me when the gala's over. <laughs> and that's it. I will, uh, I will do my best to remember to, uh, to wake you up once the gala is over. The, I believe we still have nine parts. It was 12 total, right? And I'm guessing that the Children of the Atom issue will be tangentially related to the gala. At least we're probably going to mention of it. So, yeah, I guess we got like 10 parts left of the Hellfire Gala. So, uh, yeah, I will remember to wake you when it's over here. But joking aside, I am very much looking forward to this being in the rear view. In part because I'm over it. In part because all of the, the big bits of it have already been spoiled hundreds of times online. I tell you, it's hard to keep up with correspondence to, uh, to other shows and other uh, people in the X-Men fan community when I have to kind of hold my hand over my phone screen so I don't see spoilers. I, I don't know what people are talking about, so I'm kind of out of the loop there. And yet, I've still been spoiled on basically everything that's going to come out of this. So, Anyway, <laughs> that's all for the mailbag today. As this is the June finale, we're going to take a look at some sales charts here. Now, these are coming to us from our friends at Comicron, of course, and they're for March 2021. As with the past several, we do not have shipped numbers. All we have is the rankings. So we know that a book is number one 
but we don't know how many books number one shipped slash sold. So to get us into the gestalt of what was hot in March 2021, let's go through the top five here. Uh, None of them are X-Men books, of course. Now, number one is Berserker, the uh, Keanu Reeves book, which is really no surprise. That came from Boom. Uh, It's the first issue. uh, Had uh, Boy, that was just everywhere. Um, Everywhere except for my house. I did not buy it. So uh, that is number one. Number two, Alien number one from Marvel. Three, Joker number one from DC. Four, Amazing Spider-Man number 62, of course, from Marvel. And finally, number five is Batman 106 from DC. So we love our number ones. We love it when celebrities slum in comics. We love our uh, licensed comics. It's a, it's a different world from where I grew up in. Very, very strange. Oh, except for the number one thing. We always, we always loved ourselves on some number ones. Now, let's get into the X-Books proper here, and we're going to start with one that uh, we didn't cover and won't cover on this show, but for completionist's sake, I'm going to include it. This was Demon Days, number one. Uh, This was the 10th best-selling book of the month, and that goes to show that uh, with any sort of marketing push, Marvel can sell, or at least ship, anything, and despite the fact that I think this is up to its third or fourth printing now, you could go to any comic store in this nation and probably buy about 50 first prints of this very issue because, boy, I mean, if comic shops were to stack their unsold copies of this in one part of their store, it would probably break the foundation. Uh, This is one of the most forced things that I've seen Marvel do in a very long time. Uh, Probably not since Secret Empire. (laughs) I have not seen anything quite this forced. Demon Days, you could buy oodles of them. And uh, I, I would... I would guess that in a few months you'll be able to get them for a dollar or less a piece. So if you have any tangential interest, I guess you can get it on Unlimited or you can wait a month or two until they're, you know, they show up in the quarter bins. Now, for books we actually do cover, everything went down. Okay? Every single X book dropped. So the 15th best-selling book of the month was X-Men number 19. Now, this drops down seven slots from eight. It was the eighth highest selling book in uh, the February charts. Number 22, Children of the Atom, number one, which had a healthy bit of marketing behind it and a lot of curiosity. So I don't know if that's a good number, if that's a shockingly high number or a shockingly low number, considering all the oomph that went into it. I mean, 22 is nothing really to scoff at, but at the same time, for the amount of push that this got... That's a little disappointing. And again, we don't have shipped numbers here. So number 22 might have sold a million copies. Of course, it didn't. But I mean, for all we know, it could have sold five copies. It could have sold a million. Anywhere in the middle. Uh, Book 35, X-Force number 18, which dropped down three slots from position 32. Number 40, a book we don't cover here, but did drop. X-Men Legends number 2. Not a bad drop. It went down 29 slots from number 11. Of course, the first issue had a lot of press behind it, a lot of curiosity, so X-Men Legends number one being the 11th highest-selling book, well, that might put Children of the Atom being number 22 in a perspective a little bit, but a healthy healthy drop from from 11 to 40, but not at all unexpected. What was kind of unexpected was our 61st best-selling book, Sword number four, a King in Black tie-in. This dropped down 14 slots from position 47 in uh, February. Figured that the King in Black stuff would get a a bump. Uh, Looks like Sword did not 
this kind of goes against the uh, conventional wisdom of uh, including new series in your crossover event because my thought was that hey we're gonna we introduce a sword we have one issue right sword number one then two three and four are all king and black tie-ins so we don't even get to establish the premise so much and we're already being swept into a non-x-men event this x-men book is in a wide marvel universe event here we figured this would be like a you know the tide rises all boats sort of thing no not really not really for sword it goes down a considerable amount now our 67th highest selling book was hellions number 10 which is unfortunate uh dropped down 11 slots from position 56 the 75th best-selling book, Excalibur 19, dropped 22 slots from position number 53, and somehow it's still not canceled. That's, <laughs> I don't know what it is about Excalibur that they won't just, you know, stick a fork in it. That takes us to the two books that were canceled here. The 85th highest-selling book was X-Factor number 8, which dropped down 28 slots from position 57. Part of me wonders if the uh, if the cancellation cat had already been let out of the bag at this point, because once that happens, you know, the, these books kind of just die on the vine. Finally, 89 is cable number 9, and that is down 14 more slots from position 75. It's worth noting here, while those are the lower-selling X-Men books here, they are still outselling quite a few books here. Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, that's a pretty high-profile book, right? Well, even Cable Number 9 outsold that. Star Wars Doctor Aphra, where, I mean, you couldn't open a Marvel comic without ads for that thing being thrown in your face for months. Well, Cable Number 9 outsold that, too. Conan the Barbarian, another book with a sizable push. Cable's outselling that. Champions, another one that gets kind of a push. And finally, Black Panther. Which shocked the hell out of me I thought Black Panther would be at least a B-level Marvel book In in so far as sales But no, no, it's way, way down Speaking of way, way down And simply for completionist's sake We do have two more books to list here Uh, We don't have anything to compare them to Because they're just our off-the-beaten-path books The 155th best-selling book of the month Was Power Pack number 4 And honestly, I'm surprised it's that high considering how few people gave a rat's ass about it. Uh, That was a, that was an episode that I, (laughs) I don't ever regret doing episodes, but when I did Power Pack, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed recording it. I enjoyed everything about it until it got to the point where I had to promote it. And I hate promoting my shows as it is because I'm very, very bad at it. And I know that most people really don't care about what anything that I do. But Power Pack was especially just like nobody cared at all, which is unfortunate because it was a fun story. It was a fun book. It was a fun read. It was just, it was fun, but uh, nobody cared. Nobody cared at all. And I guess nobody cared to buy the thing either. Finally, our 205th best-selling book, Runaways number 34, which is a surprise because Runaways 34 had Wolverine on the cover. Hell, you know, Power Pack number four had Wolverine on the cover. I guess slapping Wolverine on covers just doesn't do what it used to do. Then again, you know, these are shipped uh, numbers that we're gauging here, I suppose. So for all we know, they didn't even have pictures of the cover when they 
when comic shops made their orders. And it's like, oh, it's Runaways, it's Power Pack, ain't nobody gonna buy none of that, so let's order very, very few. But that will do it for our uh, look into the sales charts for March 2021 here. I'm... Curious to see how uh, the the Hellfire Gala helps to raise numbers. I would assume it's going to raise numbers because I doubt this downward trend will uh, will continue that much longer before before things start happening. I don't think I've ever seen a month where every single X book has started has slid down the charts. And again, we don't have ship numbers, so they might be shipping the same amount. It might just be that other books are shipping more. It's really an unfair comparison or analysis for me to give, but with the information we have, this is all I can do. But that will do it for the sales charts, that'll do it for the episode, and that'll do it for this run of original Recipe x Lapsed episodes until the uh, next DCBS package arrives, which can be as early as the first week of the month, or it could be as late as the third week of the month. <laughs> you just never, ever know. But... In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very, very easily. I'm a very lonely person, and I like to talk. So you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can give me a call at 623-396-JERK. That is the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline thingamabob. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. The group is 90sXmen. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, maybe even leave a, leave a nice review for me. I would really, really appreciate it. It would really help the show. But with all that said, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. I would like to thank you so much for allowing me to spend a little bit of time with you. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 214 of X-Lapsed. Uh, we are back with the original program. That is the uh, good news. The maybe not so good news is that, uh, well, we come back with Excalibur. And so, uh, let's get into it. Let's get right into it here. This is Excalibur volume 4, number 21. Had an August 2021 cover date. The story's called Don't Feel Like Dancing. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors are Eric Arshinaga. Letters VCs Ariana Mar. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sapolsky. Cover price four bucks. Went on sale June 9 of 2021. Now we are still at the Hellfire Gala, of course. We will be at the Hellfire Gala for uh, well, most of the next few weeks. And we open with our team, Excalibur, making their grand entrance into the Hellfire Gala. Now Betsy leads the way, followed by Gambit and Rogue. Jubilee is carrying Shogo, who gurgles out perhaps his first word since Generation X, which is a party. Also, we got Richter, and he's brooding, because that's Richter's soul-defining characterization right now. Now, Betsy asks Richter if he'll be in an ugly mood all night. He says, eh, you know, I just hate parties. Well, Jubilee calls him out on that, saying that she's seen Julio party down before. And Rick cops to it. Maybe he doesn't hate parties necessarily, he just hates this one. To which I say, well, brother, take a number. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Betsy Britton, Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian Braddock, Megan, and Pete Wisdom. We jump back to comics, and it is 9.30 p.m. Now, as we know, we're going to be getting bits and pieces of the gala from... You know, the team's point of view. This is going to be Excalibur's view of the Hellfire Gala. It's pretty much what we expected going in. Each book is going to be focused on the POV of the starring characters. No, no big deal with that. That's fine. Now, we have Betsy walking by, and some people off-camera point out that she's wearing something that Jumbo Carnation created. Don't know why this needed a mention, since, you know, every other friggin' mutant in this book is also— in all these books, actually, is wearing something that Jumbo Carnation created— I swear that maybe the X-Men writers get like an extra two cents in their check if they type Jumbo Carnation into a script. I, I, I can't explain any other reason why they would keep doing it. Now, Richter, he continues to brood. He mocks this gala as a uh, sort of a faux celebration of mutant kind. He cites that the person responsible for their perseverance isn't even here tonight. And that person, of course, is... Hey. Now... He claims that everyone else has forgotten about Apocalypse, but he hasn't. And I figure, um, how do we fix this? Clearly, every day on Krakoa should begin with maybe five minutes of silence in reverence of Apocalypse, right? Maybe, I guess that, that's the only way to do it. Anyway, Richter is then grabbed by the shoulder by Shatterstar. Now, Shatterstar, I'm guessing, is fresh off his battle with the Morrigan, which we saw play out over in X-Factor number 9. And as such, he's covered in blood and sweat. He pulls Julio in close, but Rick pulls away. Shatterstar doesn't quite understand why Richter you know, ain't all that happy to see him. Now, if we remember, the Morrigan did do something hinky with Gav and Rick before dying or perishing or just leaving or whatever the hell it was. Maybe this has something to do with that. Maybe it doesn't. I couldn't tell you. Anyway, Richter claims to be busy, and then he drifts away into the sea of mutanity. Betsy tells Shatterstar to maybe make like a tree and get the hell out of here. We jump ahead a little bit to 10.30 p.m. Here it's announced that Rogue will be one of the new X-Men. 
Now Excalibur congratulates her for getting out of this horrible book, and uh, it looks like Gambit will be sticking around, though. I don't know why. Uh, he doesn't seem to like being in Excalibur. He doesn't seem to like taking orders from Betsy, but he'll stick around? Um, okay, he seems, like, every time he opens his mouth, he's complaining, but he'll stay. Um, now, what's more, it seems as though he and Rogue won't be living together anymore, sort of, kind of. You see, Rogue will live on Krakoa, and Gambit and the cats will keep living at the lighthouse. Okay. Now, Betsy says that this is kind of odd because, well, it kind of is. Remy tells her, don't worry, because, you know, Rogue's got some plans, and uh, Gambit's got some plans, too. Okay. We jump over to the bar, where Betsy and Jubilee rattle Richter's cage a little bit more. But then, Pete Wisdom saunters up to whisk Betsy away for a dance. He, Pete that is, is decidedly happy that he does not live on Krakoa, and thus he sidesteps having to wear one of these heinous Jumbo Carnation outfits. And yes, I agree. Now, Pete is here to remind us of one of Excalibur's two plot lines, and uh, that is the Coven friggin' Akaba. Now, you see, this coven, this coven of witches and warlocks, has become politically powerful in Britain. What? Um, what's more, Reuben What's-His-Face is now Britain's ambassador to the United Nations. A coven. Um, I mean, I used to think that the United States had a low bar for what constitutes a politician, but Reuben is a dude who hangs out with cloaked figures. He's, he's flanked by cloaked figures on the street, and now he's a power wielder in global politics? Who in the... Oh, this is so dumb. Anyway, Reuben was apparently able to sway Britain to his cause by pointing out that their all-new witch-breed Captain Britain was an absentee. So I guess in the UK, uh, your only choices for protection are Captain Britain or a coven of witches. Seems like, uh, at the very least, an oversimplification. Um, don't they have a government? Don't they have, like, police, military? I'm... No, no. Captain Britain or witches. That's who Britain turns to in their uh, times of need. Now, that said, this is stupid. But that said, Reuben isn't wrong, right? I mean, this book is now 21 issues old. What exactly has Captain Britain done for Britain, right? I mean, as much as I hate to give the devil his due here, he's, he's not wrong. Let's jump ahead to 11 p.m. Now, Reuben and his cloaked goons have called a meeting with Betsy, Xavier, and Emma Frost. It's here where Reuben officially dissolves Great Britain's alliance with Krakoa. He claims everything will be on the up-and-up. He will send all duly signed papers, as well as repossess and return all of the mutant magic meds from his people. So, let me get this straight. An ambassador to the United Nations, you know, one, one man, he is now allowed to make a decision that will affect the entire nation that they represent? I mean, I'm not a politician. I don't know much about global government, but is this how it works? I mean, don't countries have presidents, prime ministers, senates, parliaments? I mean, governments, you know? You know, governments? But Reuben can just decide to dissolve international alliances? Is that is that what we can... This is dumb. Um, what's more, not to go on too deep a tangent here, 
We just gave this writer another book where she can misunderstand and misrepresent what happens in the corporate world. <laughs> Come on. Now, this oversimplification and just uh, surface-level kind of stuff here reminds me of my time in, in creative fiction here. It was very, very short-lived because, uh, like most things, I'm not very good at it. Um, I tried doing, like, the mini-comic thing for a bit, and I worked with, uh, with folks who were also passionate about creating comics. This is probably, boy, 20 years ago, before the technology was there to make this sort of thing easy, <laughs> you know? I'm always a step ahead of that sort of thing, you know? Right now, I think you could put out a mini-comic for almost free, right? Uh, or you could publish it to the web for free. Back then, we didn't really have that option, uh, or the availability just wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as easy to do. So I was talking with some friends about stories, and um, we were putting together this, you know, grand opus, right? And part of it was going to, there was going to be a storyline that took place in Japan. And my buddy was like, okay, well, we're going to have giant robots and giant uh, lizards attack Japan. And I was like, why? It's like, well, that happens in Japan. And I'm like, does it? (laughs) You know, I know in fiction, Japanese fiction, there are giant robots, and there is Godzilla, right? There are the kaijus and whatever, but do we really want to, like, implement that into our world? Like, do we really want to oversimplify an entire people with giant robot and big lizard? You know, it feels like, you know, at, at least an oversimplification, at worst, highly offensive to a culture, I don't know. Here we have this thing with, like, Britain is is witches and warlocks and druids and and magic. It's... boy. Um, okay, let, let's just move on. Now, Reuben, he mentions that Britain will still allow mutants to live there, but there won't be any gateways. Okay. Also, if a mutant breaks the law, they will have no immunity, and they will have to deal with British... Magic. He actually says this, quote, We can punish witch-breed crimes with our own magic. This is awful. Um, oh, and also, their magic, the British magic here, the, uh, the Kovanakaba magic, will supplant the mutant meds. Is this something that is? Like, can they magic up medicine? And if so... Why haven't they done it yet? I... Okay. Uh, Reuben also reminds us that the Braddock Lighthouse is on British land and how the mutants no longer have any control over it. So Reuben, in addition to being able to dissolve international treaties and contracts, can also evict people from places they own. This is bad. Uh, Xavier hopes that Reuben may one day reconsider. Now, Richter, he's listening at the door, and he butts in to threaten Reuben with his druidness. Reuben, like all of us reading, does not give a rip about the druids. Now, Pete Wisdom holds Richter back. He promises that they'll grab a pint the next day. Then Reuben's like, Wisdom, it's time to go. And so they go. Richter then barges out, claiming to be done with this place. Let's jump ahead to 11.30 p.m. Megan and Brian are chatting on the balcony, and a bartender asks if they want champagne. Megan declines, which baffles Brian, but doesn't even for one moment give him the inclination that his wife might be pregnant. I mean, we are in the world's most unsubtle book right now, and 
and a character is declining to drink alcohol. So, of course, they're pregnant. Get with the program, Brian. Nightcrawler then bamfs in to kiss Megan on the hand, which reminds me of that odd love triangle that these three used to have back in the early 90s in the original Excalibur book. Now, Nightcrawler immediately knows that Megan is with child, and Brian is still oblivious. So it's a, it's a good thing he's so beautiful, right? Elsewhere, Betsy and Rachel chat for a bit. Then they dance. As they dance, a sound effect plays all around them, and it goes wank, 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 wank. I don't think I want to know what that means. Um, anyway, Betsy invites Rachel to the lighthouse, and, well, since... Rachel's book was just cancelled, maybe she'll take her up on it. Info page. It's witch crap, and I'm not going to waste your or my time with it. Back to comics and with the Coven of Kaba. Now, Reuben is reunited with the world's scariest PTA mom, the dread Mariana Stern, and they're trying to figure out a way to free Morgan Le Fay. Now, of course, Morgan Le Fay was trapped by Apocalypse back 150 issues ago, Actually, it was probably 150 episodes ago, but uh, she's trapped in the castle in Avalon. She's in that lab under Jamie, Jamie the Weird's court or whatever the hell it is. So the coven decides that the only way to free her is through mutant sacrifice. And wouldn't you know it, they got Pete Wisdom right here. Now the LARPers tackle Wisdom and then plunge a crooked blade into his crooked chest. And this... Somehow frees Morgan Le Fay. Uh, just don't th- don't think too hard about it because I'm sure our writer didn't. Um, now, as this is happening, we can see that Jamie Braddock is elsewhere. He's not on a- in Avalon. He is on a red planet. Oh man, I wonder what that might mean. Hmm. Scene shift. Richter is at the lighthouse and he summons a bunch of boring druids. And he even does the whole, to me, my X-Men thing, but with druids instead of X-Men. I think I hate this book. I don't think I've said that yet, but I think I hate this book. Anyway, Richter and the druids carve the land where the lighthouse stands onto its own island, off the British mainland. I'm not sure if this counts as officially taking it back from Britain, but with this book, who could say? Morgan Le Fay escapes Avalon and arrives on Earth, where she waves her hand a little bit and causes some sort of light to emit from the lighthouse. Richter notices this, but he's then distracted by the arrival of Shatterstar. They make nice and get reacquainted. We close out with an info page, of course. Uh, It's Braddock Island. Now, Krakoa is trying to lay claim to this island that they literally, and, you know, I mean actually, just stole from Britain. I, I don't even care enough to put up a fight. Um... That's where we leave it. Next episode, we are looking at the final issue of Volume 5 of the X-Men, where we're probably going to be getting our new team officially. So uh, that's actually something to look forward to, and uh, I hope you are as well. But that's next time. Let's, uh, for now, talk about this issue of Excalibur. Um, Now, here's the thing. When a book inspires, I don't want to say a visceral reaction, but a reaction where I, I really just don't like it in a very strong way not like a passive dislike but an active i don't want to ever read this again sort of a uh, sort of a dislike i'll do that thing that folks on the internet never do i will leave the echo chamber of my mind and i will uh, maybe not so much solicit um, other opinions but i'll uh, i'll take a tour of the internet looking for other opinions things that challenge my perception things that challenge the way 
that I viewed this thing. Maybe I'll be able to, through the prism of someone else's uh, perception, get an appreciation for this. Now, one thing that I've discovered that comic fans are, are very good at, and, uh, I mean, it's for lack of a better term, and I apologize for the uh, potential crudeness of this statement, but it's uh, circle-jerking. <laughs> um, we like giving out the high scores because then the creators and publishers will notice us, they'll pat us on the head, maybe they'll share our work, you know, stuff like that. So a lot of undeserving books get high praise here, and I was expecting for the most part, to find um, this among that number. And indeed, there were some perfect 10 out of 10 scores for this book. None of them could give you any real reasons, though. They were all very, very superficial, like, you know, Howard and Toe continue their epic run, da-da-da-da-da, like not telling you anything, not telling you why you should read it, not telling you why it's good, but just saying it's good, and here are the names of the creators, so maybe they'll, they'll see this article. But that was actually not the majority here. The majority, they all fell under a certain formula. Um, bafflement uh, was the tone, but what they all had in common is that they started with a line. And this is a line that I think by law we need to include anytime we're going to uh, critique a writer. And that line is as follows. I'm sure, insert writer here, is a very nice person, but... And then you criticize the book. So you have to tell them they're a nice person first. It's one of those compliment sandwiches, I suppose. So um, I will join in. I'm sure Teeny Howard's a very nice person. I'm sure she's a pleasure to be around. That said, this this book ain't great. Um, I I mean, the only compliment I can give it is that it's not X-Corp. And I mean, that's a, that's not high praise. I mean, if you were to tell me 21 issues ago that we would still be dealing with Betsy trying to prove herself to Britain, but not actually doing anything in order to do so, just kind of saying, I'm wearing your flag, not doing anything to help the people of Britain, not really having much of an argument for people saying she's not doing enough for Britain, just like, Oh, I was shattered into pieces by Saturnine. Well, they they don't care about that. (laughs) You know, they really, really don't. And you know what? You've been back a little while now, and instead of going to Britain, the nation that you represent, you spent your free time getting fitted for an ugly outfit by Jumbo Carnation. So maybe Ruben's right. I I don't want to see that ever printed on a t-shirt, but, uh, I mean, it's hard to argue. Um, And man, every time we read this, I'm reminded that X-Factor's going away, Cable's going away, and this is not. And we've got Kavanakaba and Otherworld, and that's it. Well, at least it's pretty. It's a very, very pretty book. It, it always has been, and uh, as long as Marcus Toe is on it, it always will be. So that I can give it. But at the risk of repeating myself over and over and over again about how little I care for the rest of this book, I think I'll just put a pin in it right there. Um... Is this a vital chapter of the Hellfire Gala? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, maybe not. And I mean, not to not to continue here. Not to continue, but... The Excalibur books that took part in any crossovers... Always seem like they're more interested in pushing Excalibur's agenda forward... And not playing... Not playing ball with the rest of the line. We saw it over in uh, X of Swords... Where the Excalibur issues were very Excalibur-centric... Where we had an issue of X-Factor over there that featured one member of X-Factor, and not anything really X-Factor related. 
the other books just seem more willing to play ball and to take part in these events and put their stories kind of on the back burner. We don't get that with Excalibur. With Excalibur, it's Excalibur first. And if we're part of a crossover, it's like, well, yeah, that'll be the dressing. You know, that'll be the uh, that'll be the parsley on top of it. I don't know if that's the best way to do this. It's kind of the half-pregnant sort of thing. Um, if you're going to be part of a crossover, then damn it, be part of a crossover. But that's all I got to say about that. I promise I'm done piling on for now. Uh, from here, let's hop into our mailbag. As this is our July premiere, we do have a few letters to get to, so let's do that. We're going to start with Damien talking about Children of the Atom number two. He says, you're not wrong in finding this issue repetitive, but I felt a little more positive about the issue than you. Part of it is my love for Vida Ayala's New Mutants, which means I'm definitely giving them the benefit of the doubt on this book. I'm willing to trust that this is going somewhere. I hope you're right. And I hope before it does get there that I actually start to care about these characters a little bit more. Um, it just feels like... It feels kind of like an afterthought, and maybe that has a little bit to do with uh, kind of knowing how the sausage is made and how this book was originally solicited uh, before um, X of Swords, even. So that tells me that, I don't know, maybe it's not an urgent story. Maybe it's not really time-specific. It could be a story that could happen anywhere, which makes it feel less important. I, I don't know. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's just me. I don't know. Uh, Damien continues, I'm also on board with Lila being older. She was always meant to be older than Sam, and he and the rest of the New Mutants seem to be written as 30-ish now, so it makes sense for Lila to be 50. Claremont really liked a creepy age gap romance. See also Betsy and Cypher and Kitty and Peter. Weird. Now, this is a reference to uh, Lila Cheney having been a, uh, a performer that one of the Kota kids' parents liked to go to concerts for, which would put that uh, at, you know, 20 or so years ago, which would make Lila a fair amount older than uh, her peers or her, I wouldn't say cohorts since they're not cohorts, but made her seem a little bit older than I thought she'd be, which either told me that, uh, you know, it's Marvel sliding timescale, we're not supposed to think too hard about it, or that uh, she is definitively, you know, quite a bit older than Sam Guthrie, who she dated, you know, which... To Damien's point, Claremont uh, did not shy away from uh, the creepy <laughs> age gap romances. Uh, Damien continues, By the way, I heard Dakota Kids as Dakota Kids throughout this episode. I'm presuming that's a spin-off from the old Dakota North Power Pack crossover. That was written by Terry Austin and drawn by Will Spertasio, so it's almost an X-book. Oh man, I forgot all about that back in the day. It's funny, Dakota North, uh, I first came across Dakota North while I was reading ElfQuest. The, uh, I mean, she wasn't in ElfQuest, of course, but um, ElfQuest was one of the first titles that I ever collected with the intent of, you know, collecting it. And the house ads for that era, you know, you had some notable standouts. You know, they were pushing the new universe a lot. Uh, we had Dakota North, which I think I thought was part of the new universe initially, since her, since her ads kind of looked... Similar to those of, like, Justice and stuff like that. But I remember thinking that she was a much more important character than she ever actually was. <laughs> and so, anytime I see a mention of her, it, it kind of it kind of tickles me. And it kind of reminds me of uh, my simpler days as a comic fan. And uh, the weird perception you have when you don't have any context other than, like, this small smattering of books. And whatever the ads in those smattering of books tell you is uh, the next big thing. So yeah, Dakota North was 
I don't know. I always thought she was going to be bigger than she actually turned out to be. Uh, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until Mystique uses flambe to burn the island down, make my next lapsed. Well, we might not have to wait much longer, huh? Right now I'm looking at the cover of Marvel Free Previews number 13, July to September shipping product. And uh, that's our Inferno number one cover, which it's surprising that the X-Men are actually getting a cover here. So I feel like that doesn't happen very often. And despite warnings to the uh, to the contrary, I did flip through this previous thing. And we're going to get into this month's previews in just a little bit. But in big print here, it says the culmination of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men begins here. So I wonder if we're uh, heading to an end point. I really uh, wonder if that's uh, where we're headed or if we're maybe just at the next leg. I guess that'll all remain to be seen, but uh, whatever the case, I'm looking forward to seeing what the future brings us. But thank you so much, Damien, for writing in about Kota number 2. Next up, a strange letter in the context of what we do here. This is a non-spoiler discussion of a book we haven't covered yet. This is X-Factor number 10. Now, folks know... Who know <laughs> that there is a big thing that happens in that book, which was spoiled by Marvel and everyone who thinks that they are a news outlet uh, immediately, as soon as it happened. And I complained a lot about this to Chris Bailey, and so he decided to pop in and find out what the hubbub was all about. And he he has thoughts. They're not they're not spoiler specific, but he had some thoughts, and I figured I would share them here with you all, which is a different thing, that stuff that we don't usually do. You know, talk about a book we haven't yet actually covered, but the way that this letter goes, it doesn't have... It doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the issue itself. It's more a uh, it's more a look at the tone and uh, the spoiler, you know, uh, without spoiling it. So I think this could be an interesting exercise, and we can revisit once we do read it and see what our feelings are. So Bailey says, So I read the super big X-Factor number 10, and I have a few call-outs as a passive X-reader. Number one, this is a terrible book. A book full of characters I either don't know or can't stand with zero, and I mean zero, action. Well, yeah, you know, the first time I read X-Factor, as folks who've listened for a while will know, I wasn't a fan. You know, um, I thought these characters were not characters I wanted to see together. You know, they felt like the, the like the very worst sort of Alvaro team, where it's just random characters, and it's like, look at how silly and goofy these characters are. And I, I really didn't care for it. It felt to me like very low-hanging fruit, an appeal to an audience that I wasn't convinced existed. But once I got into it, I, I really came around to appreciating it. The characters, the writing style, the art, everything about it. And as for there not being any action, I mean, that's that's unfortunately not, not a fault of X-Factor for the moment. This is, for all intents and purposes, not even an issue of X-Factor. It's, And I haven't read it yet, so I could be wrong. But this is Hellfire Gala. That is what's taking, taking precedence here. It's all about the gala. And X-Factor as a property or as a title is kind of just a means to an end, I think. Uh, Bailey continues, This spoiler is very weak in execution. If I read this sight unseen, I would have passed on by without even wondering if this was final. Nope, the artwork is dreadful and another issue I have with many of the X titles. Now, I haven't seen the spoiler. I don't know how uh, how much gory detail is in it, if any at all. You know, um, for all I know, this could be 
you know, just a, a hint of what happens, um, or it could be a full-blown, you know, shot of what happens. I, I don't know yet. Uh, he continues, the covers are unappealing. The entire package is just not for me. Someone help me here. Is this good? I don't get why people are buying this. Well, um, again, the cover, it's gala. You know, we really can't hold that against the book itself. Is it good? Yes, yes. And unfortunately, people aren't buying it. (laughs) That's kind of why it's going away. I don't know if this issue is necessarily good. I also don't know how much say the uh, main creative team had in the direction of this issue with having to facilitate the big, you know, shock ending of the gala. I would definitely recommend checking out, like, the middle portion of X-Factor if you do have any kind of inclination to do so. Some really good stuff there. Some good characterization. Really building on established characterization, having a whole lot of subplots. As we've mentioned in our X-Factor discussions here, for such an untraditional book, it's oddly one of the more traditional X-Books. It's very Claremontian in the way it tells its story, and in, in, in such, it's... There's something about it, right? There's certainly something about it that uh, that resonates in me and in a lot of the listeners who really appreciate this title and will uh, and will miss it when it's uh, when it's gone. Bailey wraps up with, "Is this the same product from Hox or Pox? It certainly doesn't feel like it." Now that's my old man on the lawn analogy, and you know I, I don't think you're alone in that uh, sensation there. Uh, even when I just started this show back in the long ago, people warned that. I may not want to continue after episode 12, you know, because uh, Hox Pox, everybody really, really appreciated, or, or, you know, a lot of people did. I don't want to say everybody, but for the most part, folks who uh, checked in with me had very, very positive things to say about uh, House of X and Powers of X, but they warned that uh, this level of quality was not going to, uh, was not going to remain. It wasn't going to keep up this same level of just... Quality and concept And, uh, you know, I took all those opinions And I figured, okay, maybe I will just do 12 episodes of this And call it good Maybe revisit down the line Maybe do some sort of a, uh, you know For folks who used to follow the old Chris and Reggie Patreon I had that Catching Up with Chris show Where I would just read a bunch of stuff That had been sitting on my to-read pile And I would talk about it for, you know, 20-30 minutes Just, here's six issues of Action Comics And uh, this is what I thought about them Kind of thing You know, not nothing... Nothing formal, you know, nothing really structured, nothing really bullet-pointed or noted. It's just a kind of a discussion. I thought maybe we would do that. I got wrapped up in it, and uh, thus, you know, uh, 200 episodes later, we're still here. But the folks who said to kind of be wary, they weren't wrong. Um, A lot of these books have really been... Treading water and, and kind of just filler Compared to the main overarching Hoxpox uh, framework, I guess For lack of a better term That's probably reason why so many folks Have uh, kind of walked away And only come back for the events Because they learned, you know They learned that a lot of these uh, stories In between events are basically just there To fill time, fill months And get us to the next point it's probably, you know, another reason why, you know, in addition to many reasons why, uh, this show has uh, kind of stagnated in listenership. You know, people were all in on Hoxpox uh, when I was doing those episodes, but I think I said early on, it's like, I don't expect, you know, um, House of X number five and Fallen Angels number four to have like the same amount of listeners. And indeed, they did not. But uh, 
No, I think your your point is well taken here that this is quite tonally different from uh, the story that kicked off this entire uh, line of books. But uh, thank you so much for uh, checking out that spoiler and uh, and letting us know what you thought about it um, without actually spoiling it, which is really, really cool, because uh, I don't want to be the person who ruins this for someone who's been able to avoid it. So uh, thanks again for uh, taking the time to check it out and for writing in. Next up, we got Evan talking about Excalibur number 19. He starts with, I understood this issue. Which, uh, I mean, for Excalibur, that's a, that's a pretty big compliment. And the broad strokes of the story, at least. I'm not sure how Betsy went from, I've got to get home, to, I can't return because I'm a failure as Captain Britain. I feel like if they had combined elements of issues 17 and 18, it would have been easier to follow. Although I suppose she had to escape from that other Betsy's life before she could return. And I feel like I missed an issue just reading that, uh, that description. It's, oh, this is a bizarre book. Um... You know, Betsy couldn't go back to Britain because she was busy being uh, fitted for a dress. So uh, you got to understand that, I guess. Evan continues, I hadn't thought about the sinister connection with Malice, but you may be onto something there. This would have been in- an interesting opportunity for an Excalibur Hellions crossover with the Hellions pressed into service to help track down Malice. Grey Crow seems to have a soft spot for all of his Marauders teammates, although I don't recall if Malice was one of the originals. And yeah, that definitely could have been a story they could have uh, approached, you know, bringing in the Hellions, maybe try to zhuzh up this book a little bit. But as I mentioned earlier on, I feel like anytime Excalibur crosses over with anything else, anything else becomes the back seat, right? It really, it's all about Excalibur. It's all about pushing the story of Excalibur and not playing nice with whoever um, is taking part in the crossover. So maybe it's a good thing we didn't get that. Um, now, Evan wraps up with, well, until Wolverine guest stars in Excalibur to investigate a portal to Otherworld in the heart of Madripoor, make mine ex-lapsed. Oh boy, that sounds like a, that's like the most hox pox dox rock socks uh, sentence ever put to paper, I think. I think the only way we can make it more uh, current year X-Men books is by saying that Wolverine died four times in the process and had to be hatched over and over and over again. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about Ol' Excalibur, which at least reminds me that I'm not the only one suffering through it. So thank you so much, Evan. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a letter from Andrew, who's talking about Marauders number 21, the first part of the Hellfire Gala. He says, It's hard to describe exactly how I feel about this issue. Saying I disliked it feels too strong a stance. Really, I guess I just found it boring. I, it really didn't do anything for me at all. I suppose my strongest feeling was one of disappointment, because I figured Jerry Duggan would have at least made me feel somewhat engaged. But I wasn't. I get that this was supposed to be our first taste of the Gala crossover. Perhaps it was even conceived to be the appetizer to our Gala's main course. And now that I think about it, yeah, that sounds just pretentious enough to be true. I'm sure this was talked about in the writers' meetings as being the hors d'oeuvres of the crossover. But I feel that every comic issue should stand on its own as a story, and this, to me, was not a story. It was a collection of disparate scenes that ended eventually and somewhat abruptly. The jump cut to after the big something was obviously supposed to get the audience excited about the whatever it was, but it just cemented to me that nothing really happened in this issue, and I kind of wasted my time reading it. At least it was short. And I think I refrained from, like, really commenting on this issue when we read it because I took it, you know, kind of like you put it there. It's uh, it's the hors d'oeuvres, right? It is the appetizer. It's the stage setting. And 
really just there to kind of branch everything else off of. Uh, I I think I mentioned during that discussion that I didn't know how this would be collected. I'm assuming that it's going to be collected in the, you know, easiest, most lazy way possible, just as issues, right? We'll get, it'll start with Marauders number 21, then it'll go to X-Force number whatever, and then to Hellions number whatever. I was wondering if they were going to do it like is a real-time thing. I don't even know if that would be possible. That would take a whole hell of a lot of coordination, right, to make sure that pages ended right where they needed to so they could be fitted in between two other pages. Like we can take three pages from X-Force and put it into in between two pages of Marauders and, and make it fit and make it flow, and we actually get the, the evening, right? We actually can see the evening happen as it happens. And, I mean, if they were to put something like that out, I would probably actually buy it and reread it, and then we could uh, we could discuss it from a whole different angle. I don't see that happening. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I'm I might be the only person on the planet who would want that. And Marvel's been making it more and more clear as we go on here that uh, I'm not their target demographic. So I'm not thinking that that's going to happen. But when we read this first issue, I I kind of hesitated from taking a firm stance on it myself because. This is not a story, right? Um, I think I compared it to X-Men Prime back from uh, when we got back from the Age of Apocalypse, where it was just a series of vignettes trying to set the, uh, set the table, right? So if we wanted to know where everything stood at this very moment, bada-bing, bada-boom, there you go. And if you were interested in where X-Force was going to go, you, you pick up the issue of X-Force. If you were interested in where X-Factor is going to go from here, you pick up the issue of X-Factor. That's kind of how I took this. And, uh, I mean, as such, I guess it was successful. I, I mean, I'm not the right person to ask since I am a completionist, right? If there's anyone out there listening who isn't a completionist, who may, you know, give and take comics as they are, you're, you're far more better well-adjusted on this planet than I am. But if you read Marauders number 21 and you don't have the inclination to buy every single X book out there, did it work for you? Did it did it make you want to go out and buy other books that you wouldn't otherwise? Did it make you want to avoid books that you're currently reading? Did it not change anything at all? I mean, that would be the true metric of how successful this is as an issue, because as a story, we can't really grade it, right? Because it's, as you mentioned, it's a series of vignettes, not really a story. But anyway, back to Andrew's letter here. He says, I'm in the minority since I don't read Marauders, but not because I think Duggan's writing isn't good or that the book is bad. I just don't find the storyline that interesting. This issue, however, wasn't very good in my opinion. I expected more out of Duggan, and so I was disappointed. Not a great start to this crossover, but for what it's worth, I enjoyed the next two parts of the first week's releases better. And those were uh, X-Force and Hellions, and uh, yeah, I, I, I mostly agree. I, I don't remember exactly how I felt about X-Force. <laughs> I figure we'll probably revisit that when we get to Wolverine, but... Uh, Hellions was a blast, and Hellions is always a blast, so I definitely enjoyed that one uh, much better than, well, probably anything so far. Anyway, Andrew wraps up with, So until we get an even stranger Avengers lineup, seriously, Cap, Blade, Ghost Rider, Thor, and She-Hulk? <laughs> Make mine next lapsed. Well, yes, uh, that is an odd assemblage of Avengers, isn't it? I didn't know the Avengers were going to go Alvaro, but... Uh, they did. How about that, huh? But uh, thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts about the first part. 
the appetizer for the Hellfire Gala, and I definitely look forward to hearing further thoughts from you on how this whole thing shakes out. So thank you so much. Now, since this is the first episode of the month, we got Marvel previews. Oh man, as if this episode hasn't dragged on long enough as it is. So uh, we are looking at Marvel previews number, I want to say, 12? Yes, 12. And on the cover... It's the Fantastic Four's 60th anniversary, uh, Fantastic Four number 35. Uh, John Romita Jr. is back, which I suppose mileage may vary on J.R.J.R. Uh, I am I'm a fan of his work. I, I can definitely uh, appreciate and admit that it isn't what it used to be, but it's still something of a, of a comfort food for me. I, I will always enjoy seeing it. The back cover. We get yet another Black Panther number one. Which, um, what's the definition of insanity again? I mean, if it didn't work the first 15 times? Uh, I don't know. Now, John Ridley is the writer, and apparently this is a big deal. I didn't look up who he is, so, I mean, I don't know. Our inside front cover has a Trial of Magneto number 1 advertisement. And the first X-book we'll be looking at is X-Men, colon, The Trial of Magneto number 1 of 5. It was by Leo Williams and Lucas Wernick, $5 cover price. The blurb is the story that will shake Krakoa to its core. So, one of the stories, I suppose, that will shake Krakoa to its core because, uh, well, the very next issue of Marvel Previews has Inferno in it, and I think there's also an Onslaught thing in there, and uh, we're doing a whole lot of shaking going on. Um, now, our, our little uh, blurb here is a horrific murder, a shocking revelation, a trial that will divide the new mutant nation. Leah Williams and Valerio Shidi... Oops. Uh, bring you a new epic that threatens the reign of X and will upend the world of mutants. The truth is hidden, the danger is far from over, and the trial has begun. So yeah, I don't know who edits the Marvel previews, but uh, yeah, they had the wrong artist in there. The original artist that was put on this, uh, Valerio Shidi, but uh, it's changed to Lucas Wernick. Now I'm looking forward to this kind of in spite of it. Uh, as I mentioned here, we're getting a lot. We're getting just bombarded with stuff that's going to shake Krakoa. That's going to threaten the reign of X. It's going to threaten Krakoa, and it's it. This is a lot, right? I mean, it's the whole famine to feast and back to famine thing. We spend all these months kind of just you know circling the drain, treading water, trying not to sink, and then it's like, well, here's Inferno, here's Onslaught, here's Trail of Magneto. It's just a lot. <laughs> It really is, and when everything is being touted as being the most important, then really, what is? It's kind of, it's kind of tough. Uh, next, we got Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood, number one of five, written by uh, Tom Taylor, Ed Brisson, and James Stokoe, and uh, with art by Will Spatasio and Phil Noto, five dollars. Probably more creators in there, but these are the ones that were listed. The, uh, the headline is, like a classic black-and-white movie, but with way more blood. Who's black and white and red all over? Three blood-drenched tales of violence and mayhem led by Marvel's mirthful mercenary himself, Deadpool. You want to see today's top talent take it to the hilt and bring you the wildest Wade Wilson adventures yet? Then this book's for you. It's just, it's as plain as black-and-white and red. And I'm including that one because there's at least one X-related story in it. Uh, we're going to see Scout and Deadpool team up, which sounds like an absolute hoot. Hopefully it gets a, a decent amount of pages so we can maybe give it its entire episode, you know, where we can do a little focusing on Scout. I think that could be could be a lot of fun. 
That could be a lot of fun. I have that on my order. So even if it doesn't, you know, uh, need or necessitate its own episode, we'll mention it in passing if we, whenever the uh, moment should arise. Next up, another $5 book. Cable Reloaded number one. Al Ewing, Bob Quinn, five bucks again. The Big Gun is back. It's a new era in a new galaxy that's under siege from a deadly new threat. But you can still rely on one man. Cable is locked, loaded, and landing on the deadliest planet next history to steal the ultimate weapon and to stop the last annihilation. So, uh, yeah, another alien threat. Um, okay, uh, it's Old Man Cable, of course, so I'm kind of looking forward to how we get here. You know, it looks like it could be uh, pretty interesting. Um, I am still lamenting the fact that we're losing our Cable book. It's 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 a fun book, so... Hopefully this will be worth it. Uh, we still don't really know exactly what's what about this. Uh, Marvel kind of announced this and then took a few steps backwards because I think they realized that they spoiled the end of Cable number 12 in so doing. I guess it'll all remain to be seen. We'll get there when we get there. Next up, not a $5 book, but a $6 book. Now this is Marvel's Voices Identity number 1 by many, many, many people. The headline reads, Celebrating the Greatest Asian Superheroes and Creators from Across the Marvel Universe. The blurb is, Some of the best Asian heroes in comics are getting the spotlight in this special action-packed and heartfelt issue. Shang-Chi, Ms. Marvel, Jubilee, Silk, Jimmy Woo, come celebrate these amazing and legendary heroes from new and established Asian creators that will surely expand the world outside your window. Plus, be prepared for some big and special surprises that can only be told in the mighty Marvel manner. I feel like Stan Lee wrote that last line there because it doesn't mean much, does it? Um, Now, this is a book that got a little bit of flack online because uh, it didn't hit during Asian Pacific Islanders Heritage Month. And so a lot of folks pointed out that uh, the DC got it right and Marvel got it wrong. Um... I really don't have much comment on that here uh, other than to say, you know, both both sides are trying. You know, I don't think this is about touting one and, and pushing one, another one down here. Marvel has been on top of it with this Voices initiative for quite a while now. So, um, I mean, if this is your kind of thing, then, then you know, appreciate it. Appreciate that it's here. Support it. And hopefully um, some of these creators will... Will break out of the anthology format and maybe get their own books, or maybe they'll get their own tries on established books. You know, let's be positive about it. Next up, X Men Volume Six, Number Two. Duggan and Laraz, four dollars. Headline: Always bet on X. As threats hurtle toward the Earth from all sides, the fearless X Men fight a seemingly unstoppable wave of annihilation. But even more dangerous threats lurk in the darkness, ready to strike in secret. More space stuff? Do do we really need... Okay. Way of X number five. Cy Spurrier, Bob Quinn, four dollars. This is the way. What happens when the third law of Krakoa is broken? What happens when all other solutions have failed? What happens when Nightcrawler finally finds the way? And our cover features Nightcrawler being dragged somewhere by Onslaught. I think when we finished the last issue of uh, Way of X that we covered here, I was uh, very happy that the Onslaught thing didn't seem like it was going to become like a big thing that was going to take over the line. Still doesn't look like that's going to happen, but there will be 
there's going to be an onslaught issue, at least. I don't know if it's a one-shot or a mini coming out in a couple of months. So hopefully it's written by Spurrier. I, I you know, avoided spoilers and avoided uh, as much as I can about knowing what's coming. So I'm assuming it's Spurrier. So fingers crossed. And uh, I, I don't know how I feel about it becoming yet another thing. But, you know, we got the trial. We got Inferno. It's, I don't know. Next up, Children of the Atom number six. By Ayala and Medina, $4 The headline reads, No One Likes Goodbyes The blurb, The Hellfire Gala is here, a.k.a. the most important party of the year Come on, really? Can we, can we be done with the Hellfire Gala? Uh, the truth finally comes out for the Kota kids, plus a heartbreaking goodbye Maybe forever Hmm, maybe, it's, maybe we're done? Could we be done, maybe? Boy, I hope I hope that's code for this is a miniseries and it's 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 over. Um, now the cover has gimmick parted from the team, looking like she's about to enter a Krakoan gate. Um, uh, Hellfire Gala in, in a few months, really? Still? Okay. Um, X Corp number four. I, I hope this is still a miniseries. Uh, the first time we saw it, I think it was listed as a five issue miniseries. So fingers crossed. Howard Fochi, four dollars. Headline, Single Point of Failure. The blurb reads, When a deal doesn't go as expected, it's important to be open to new investors. Enter Saline and Mastermind, two potential stakeholders who stand willing to prove their worth. Everyone loves you when you're on top, but who comes through in the clutch? Okay. Any bets on whether or not Saline's story in Captain America or Mastermind's story in Hellions gets mentioned at all? Or flat-out contradicted? I, I gotta wonder, um, because I doubt there'll be any kind of service given to either of those stories here. I, I almost included some of the Captain America stuff in this show, because uh, Celine, I guess, uh, like killed a bunch of humans over there. And that was just dropped off on Krakoa, where she didn't have to face trial, and uh, is just apparently wheeling and dealing with X-Corp now. So, who knows? Uh, the cover is more Wildcats 3.0 looking stuff uh, We got Saline and Mastermind sitting on a red couch Next, Hellions number 14 Zeb Wells, Roge Antonio, $4 uh, Before we even get into it, yay, this wasn't cancelled, so that's good uh, The headline, The Locust Vile Returns Tarn the Uncaring and his murderous Locust lo- Locust Vile, easy for me to say, take revenge on Mr. Sinister and the Hellions but the Hellions are ready for the rematch. Well, sort of. I can't wait. I can't wait. This is going to be fun. Um, I enjoyed their last confrontation with the Locust Vile, and I always love Hellions, so looking forward to it. The cover has Tarn and the Locust Vile holding the Hellions in their hands, so nice cover. Sounds like an interesting premise. Really looking forward to it. Next up, X-Men Legends number 6. Peter David, Todd Nock, $4. Wolfsbane Unleashed. Renegade mutants have taken hostages at the Latvarian Embassy, and Doctor Doom isn't happy about it. And with one of X-Factor's own in their clutches, it's going to be a high-powered, a super-powered battle on multiple fronts as innocent lives hang in the balance. Experience these villains' first battle in the dramatic conclusion to this all-new adventure set during Peter David's original X-Factor run. I'm happy this book is still around. I've still yet to read it. I will hopefully do so. Eventually. <laughs> Hopefully very soon. Next, X-Force number 22. Uh, Percy and Robert Gill, $4. Headline reads, Fatal Flora. 
The material makeup of manslaughter has been used to infect and control an army of unwilling agents. Can X-Force get to the root of, a, of the problem before Dr. Bloodroot kills again? I'm not sure this story's even started yet, and it feels like it's been going on forever. Um, the cover has X-Force surrounded by plant gunk and maybe Man-Thing. Neither of which I'm terribly excited for, but I don't know. Maybe with the maybe with names like Manslaughter and Bloodroot, we're trying to really evoke that early '90s feel. I don't know. Whatever. Next, Marauders number twenty-three, Duggan and Zay Carlos, four dollars, and uh, twenty-three issue twenty-three. So we might actually get a twenty-fifth issue of an X book. I, I, could you imagine? <laughs> The headline reads, Screaming into Battle. As new problems face mutant kind in Ireland, the Marauders bring in Banshee for some assistance. Meanwhile, one prominent member of Verendi has their mind changed. Okay, so, a menace in Ireland here. I, I, oh man, I hope this is the leprechauns of Cassidy Keep. They, they finally gotta come... No, probably not. Now, the Verendi member is probably Wilhelmina following up on whatever it was that the Cuckoos did to her during the gala in uh, Marauders number 21. Now the cover, uh, we've probably all seen it here. This one went around the socials quite a bit not too long ago. We've got Banshee here. We also have uh, Tempo, and they're alongside the Marauders. And Tempo looks like she's part chicken. She's got like one of those like uh, crown sort of things like a, like a rooster has. I don't know. I don't know. Next, Wolverine number 15, Percy Cubit, $4.00. Blackmore's Fight. Now, Wolverine comes face-to-face with Iraqi pirate crime lord Seaver Blackmore. But will their fight lead Logan to the clues he needs to catch Solemn, or put him right where the manipula- manipulative mutant wants him? Uh, more Iraqi stuff. Uh, I guess I'm okay with it. It's better than vampires, right? It's better than other worlds. It's better than Madripoor, so... I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, now, the cover features Wolverine battling, I assume, Blackmore? Now, Logan has a whole lot of adamantium bone showing, so he's likely getting his butt kicked. So, like I said, it's not vampires, it's not Madripoor. I'm okay with it. Uh, finally, we got uh, a maybe book, Guardians of the Galaxy number 17, which is a Last Annihilation book. We might cover it. Uh, I'm going to order it just in case so I don't have to rush out and find it if, uh, if it does come down to being something sword or cable or just X-related at all. So... I'll grab it, we'll play it by ear, and uh, we will uh, go from there. We got a slew of collected editions to get to here. We got the X-Men by Hickman Omnibus. Now, uh, this is probably what's on bookstore shelves in hell, I think. Uh, now, this includes X-Men Volume 5, 1 through 11, and 16 through 21. Also, all the giant sizes. And material from Incoming Number 1. What the hell is Incoming? Do I need to get that? Let me know. Let me know. It's uh, 656 pages, $75. Next, we got X-Men The Mutant Massacre Omnibus, which features a whole lot of books here. We got Uncanny X-Men issues 210 through 219 and Annual 11. X-Factor 9 through 17 and Annual 2. New Mutants number 46. Thor 373, 374, 377, and 378. Power Pack 27. Daredevil 238. Fantastic Four vs. X-Men 1 through 4, and X-Men vs. Avengers 1 through 4. This thing has 952 pages and a $125 price tag. So certainly not an impulse buy. <laughs> but if you're interested in it, it's there for you. 
We got the Wolverine and the X-Men Omnibus, which collects Wolverine and the X-Men numbers 1 through 35, and then 38 through 42, and annual number 1. This one's 936 pages, 125 well-spent dollars here. Wolverine and the X-Men, a wonderful, wonderful series I'd recommend to anybody listening to this program. New Mutants Omnibus Volume 2. This has New Mutants 35 through 52 and annuals 2 and 3. New Mutants Special Edition Number 1. X-Men Annual 9 and 10. Power Pack 20 and 33. Fallen Angels 1 through 8. Firestar 1 through 4. New Mutants War Children, which came out just before uh, Hoxpox. Uh, it's a Chris Claremont thing. It's a Marvel 80th anniversary celebratory issue that I just found in the bins not too long ago. I didn't even know it was a thing, but I, I grabbed it. haven't read it, but I have it. Also, Web of Spider-Man Annual Number 2. This one has 1,240 pages and a $125 price tag. So you're getting, boy, almost... Uh, 300 more pages for the same price as the other omnibuses. That's pretty, uh, pretty good deal. Next, X-Men The Hellfire Gala Red Carpet Collection, which collects the entire thing and has a $75 cover price for 352 pages. So, Jesus. Um, we also have the X-Men Hellfire Gala Trade Paperback Volume 1, which collects like four issues of it. It's 120 pages, 18 bucks. We got Wolverine by Ben Percy, Volume 2, which collects Wolverine issues 8 through 12. It's 144 pages for $16. Sword by Ewing, Volume 1. Sword 1 through 5, 152 pages for 16 bucks. Finally, we have Uncanny X-Men, The Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire Trade Paperback, which collects Uncanny X-Men 475 through 486. That's 312 pages for $35. So... That's the lot of it. Um, let's go week by week here. Now, August 4th, we got Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood, or White, Black, and whatever it is. It's uh, issue one of that. Also, Hellions number 14 and X-Men number two. So if you're just buying Hellions and X-Men, that's an $8 week. If you're keeping up with Deadpool as well, that's 13 bucks. August 11th, we got Children of the Atom number six, Marvel's Voices Identity number one, Way of X number 5, X-Force number 22, and X-Men Legends number 6. So if you're just buying the X-Lab stuff, that's $12 for that week. If you're buying everything, it's a 22 August 18th, Guardians of the Galaxy number 17, which is a maybe. Uh, Marauders number 23, X-Core number 4, and Trial of Magneto number 1. So that's either a 14 or $18 week. Finally, on August 25th, we got two books, Cable Reloaded and Wolverine 15, so that's a $9 week. So if you just buy an X-Lab stuff or X-Men stuff, it's $43 for the month of August. Uh, it's worth noting we got two books MIA. They are New Mutants and, thankfully, Excalibur. We won't have Excalibur that month, so thumbs up to that. Now, as if this show hasn't gone on long enough as it is, it is Monday. So let's look on shelves and on Marvel Unlimited for this week. It's a pretty short week, either either way you look at it. Um, on shelves, we got uh, well, we got the stuff sandwich here. <laughs> we got Excalibur twenty two and X Corp number three, but in the middle of that, we got Way of X number four. So something really good, surrounded by other stuff. So so if you're interested in any or all of those three books, uh, well, you'll get them Wednesday. Uh, Marvel Unlimited has three new books this week, and they are Excalibur number 20, 
Marauders number 19, and Runaways number 35, which we covered here on the show not too long ago. So, three books on shelves, three books on Marvel Unlimited, and I think that is finally it. Um, now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline voicemail thingamabob at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Join our little group. It's 90s X-Men. We have a lot of fun in there talking about all sorts of stuff, and I hope to see you there. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie Comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, yada, yada, yada. I think we're finally done, so I want to thank you all so, so much for allowing me to be an extended part of your day today. We broke an hour, so uh, thank you all so much for uh, hanging out and for your patience between DCBS shipments uh, for these new current year X-Books. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Chris, welcome to episode 215 of X-Limes, where we're going to be closing out a volume. And today is the final issue of X-Men Volume 5, which, uh, you know, we talk about renumbering here every once in a while. Um, Not a fan of it. (laughs) I'm very much not a fan of it. I would be just as fine with uh, X-Men number 22 uh, being the first in the new direction, or... Hell, you know, Uncanny X-Men number 670 or whatever the hell it would be. That would be just fine with me as well. But that is not the world we're living in, unfortunately. So uh, let's get into it here. This is X-Men Volume 5, number 21, at an August 2021 cover date. The story is called The Beginning. 
get it? Because it's the end, and okay. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Nick Dragata, uh, Russell Dodderman, Lucas Warnick, and Sarah Pacelli. Colors, Frank Martin, Matthew Wilson, Sonny Goh, and Nolan Wooded. Letters, VCs, Kate. Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White Sapolsky, cover price $4, and this one went on sale June 9 of 2021. Now we open... And it is 8.12 p.m. Of course, this is Hellfire Gala, so we are getting just the uh, the high points of the evening from the points of view of uh, certain characters. So, uh, like I mentioned over the course of the past couple of episodes, I don't know if we're ever going to get a collection where these are all sort of in order. I don't think we will be. You never know. But moving on, it is, uh, again, 8.12 p.m. We see Namor, and he's being served some drinks by a Madrox dupe. Now, uh, the Madroxes, they're in their old costumes, you know, with the little head sock and the dots and stuff. Lucky for them, because they get to sidestep, you know, wearing a Jumbo Carnation abomination, so good on them. Now, this serving of drinks is interrupted by the arrival of a pair of village idiots, and uh, this is Xavier and Magneto, who continue to look absolutely ridiculous. Um, I think at this point we officially need to draw a line under uh, making fun of Kitty Pride's old self-designed costumes. I think we're not allowed to do that anymore after seeing how ridiculous everybody looks in the Hellfire Gala. I think we need to make that a law in X-Men fandom. We can no longer make fun of Kitty wearing, you know, knee uh, leg warmers and roller skates and, uh, you know, the cat's eye thing. We're not allowed to do that anymore. Anyway, as mentioned, Xavier looks like a slot machine vomited on him, and uh, Magneto looks like a cross between a pimp and a kid's party magician. Now, they're here to chat up the Submariner. Now, Namor makes it pretty clear he isn't even happy to have shown up. Not exactly sure why he did. Maybe just a morbid curiosity. Whatever the case, X and M would very much like to have Namor on their side, and even go as far as to offer him one of the vacant seats on the Quiet Council. Which, Namor being Namor, mocks. And it's pretty great. Uh, He's all, ooh, a seat? I should say so. You people should be offering to abdicate seats for me, much less giving me a vacant one. He then tells them basically to stick it up their asses. Um, Namor says he holds domain over 70% of this planet. Why would he ever waste his time on some island's council? He leaves the geeks and goes to stand with his old Illuminati running buddies, uh, Iron Man, Captain America, Mr. Fantastic, Black Panther, and Doctor Strange, which might be a little bit troubling. From here, a double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include, but are not limited to, Professor X, Magneto, Namor, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Emma Frost. There will be at least three times as many people showing up in this book here. Now, it's 10.15 p.m. next, and it's the election, which... You know, might have been something I'd be looking forward to had Marvel not spoiled it like three months ago. In fairness to Marvel, I'm sure some of the uh, wonderful social media folks out there would have already spoiled it for us anyway, so uh, it doesn't really matter. Now, Cyclops and Jean call for everyone's attention. Uh, And now, they call this an election, but it's maybe not so much like an election the way we look at it. It's more of like a melding of minds here. All the mutants get to express their interest in becoming an X-Men, and then... A consensus is made or something Where, you know, the perfect Cadre is uh, assembled I guess this You know, sort of formation here This uh, way of doing business is Why we're not getting those actual election pages That we saw when Marvel was spoiling this thing Over the course of a week back in March or April I really assumed that we'd be seeing those pages here And we don't 
Now, whatever the case, um, it doesn't take long for Gene to tabulate the whatever the hell it is and uh, names our new Volume 6 team. Now, they are, I mean, to the shock of nobody, uh, in addition to Sheehan Cyclops, Rogue, Sunfire, Wolverine, that's X-23, Sink, and Polaris. Again, we knew this. Now, the new X-Men dramatically pose on their horrid Jumbo Carnation abominations, wasting yet another entire page spread in the process. Uh, We get a lot of that here. It's almost as though... I mean, I'm projecting here, but maybe they didn't... Maybe they realized there wasn't a whole lot of story to tell here. So uh, we're just getting, like, a showcase for the multiple artists we have on this book. It's like, here, do a full-page spread. Hey, do two of them. You know, we're just naming a team and then throwing some, some garnish on it. I don't know. From here, we actually get some stuff that's a lot of fun here. This is info pages, believe it or not. And it's more Sinister Secrets. It's been a long time. I think it's been, boy, uh, the better part of two years since we had a Sinister Secret here. I think it was in Marauder's number something or another, very, very early on in the run here. Now, we're starting with Sinister Secret number 51. So it looks like we're not privy to Secrets 20 through 50. Because uh, we had like the first 10 or 15 during Hoxpox, and then we had another 5 or maybe it was another 10 in, uh, in Marauders. So we were up to number, tw- number 19 or 20, I believe. It's uh, a lot of missing secrets. Maybe we'll eventually revisit those. Uh, but let's start with Sinister Secret number 51. It goes a little something like this. Uh, this quiet council member isn't actually fooling anyone. They're fooling everyone. Wear a mask long enough and eventually it starts wearing you. Such a shame not being able to let things go. Now, the thing with the Sinister Secrets is sometimes they're very um, figurative. Sometimes they're literal, you know? So if we look at this one literally, um, this has got to be a reference to Professor X always wearing the Cerebro helmet, you know? That is a mask. Now, this might be referring to him maybe becoming less of a man with humanity and feelings, like an actual well-rounded person, and uh, maybe just becoming the wearer of Cerebro? I don't know, maybe. Um, And, of course, uh, a well-rounded person is, uh, relatively speaking, of course, because this is Professor X we're talking about. Sinister Secret number 52. She doesn't have it yet, but one way or another, this mutant always, always, always gets what she wants. Will it be given to her, or will she? Will it have to be taken? Doesn't matter. The real question is, what's in the box? Could it be diamonds, or something far more valuable? Now, I wonder if maybe this has something to do with that box or crate of whatever it was that was delivered to Emma Frost back in uh, Marauders 21 by the Shi'ar. Now, we know also that there's a mutant who really, really wants something. And uh, that's talking about Mystique wanting her wife Destiny back. Now, I wonder, could she have perhaps impersonated Emma and ordered the Shi'ar package? Is this why it came to Emma, but Emma herself didn't remember ordering it? I don't know. Perhaps that's a, uh, a step toward Inferno. We'll see. Sinister Secret 53. I bet you'd like to know how this fittest of all mutants is handling the second genesis of his mu- of his eternal life. Sorry, you'll have to wait to find out. I mean, clearly, this is Apocalypse, right? Um, and I guess we're going to have to wait to see a little bit more about him. Sinister Secret 54. Seducer made an honest man of the island's favorite boy, but what unspoken secrets are coursing through the nervous system of the favorite boy's island friend? Are you listening? I know that you are. 
Now, the island's favorite boy is probably Doug, right? Uh, he's now married, thus an honest man. And I think, was Bay the Blood Moon Sword the seducer? Was that it? I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, Sinister here presumes that Krakoa is keeping a secret and is always listening, um, and maybe that secret is a Scottish one. Hmm. Well, he doesn't say that. I'm, you know, projecting a little bit. Sinister Secret 55. Regarding secrets and secret alliances, and the shadow play that is the great game of nations, just how many ruling councils are there now circling the sun? I'll never tell, but if you say two, you're definitely too low. All right, so he says two. And we know that we have the Quiet Council of Krakoa and also the Great Ring of Arako. There's two. Well, there's more than two, right? What could be the third, the fourth, the fifth? Who knows? We know Orcus is being set up as having something of a an organization, right? We've seen those heavily redacted pages. We know that uh, Henry Gyrick is... Uh, one of the members of that. Uh, we don't know who the rest are. We don't even know what the other divisions are. So... There's a ruling council, right? Uh, this is Marvel, of course, so it could just be some aliens. <laughs> you never know. Uh, it could be the Phalanx, perhaps. Um, maybe it's Sword. Sword is... Uh, I mean, Sword is semi-loyal to Krakoa, but we do know that they have their own hierarchy and structure. We know that they have their, their color-coordinated divisions and departments, and uh, I guess we could say like they have their six... That is a ruling council of sorts. Also, uh, earlier on in this issue, we saw some uh, big brains getting put together in the Illuminati. Could the Illuminati be another ruling council here? Could the Illuminati be working in the shadows, as they usually do, to uh, maybe keep an eye on or quash uh, the Krakoan growth? Uh, I guess we'll find out. There's always a possibility that this could be referring to something we haven't even seen yet. So... A lot of opportunities there for a lot of interesting stories. So, uh, I mean, unless they're aliens. So let's, let's, let's hope they're not aliens. But if it's Orcus, uh, the Phalanx, Sword, Illuminati, I'm down with it. I'm down with it. Sinister Secret, number 56. And speaking of things that come in twos, two empty seats on the Quiet Council are too, too many. Look for there to be moves made in the filling of those empty seats, regardless of how many favors have to be called in or how many unwise alliances are formed. Just remember, when everyone has a secret, no one can be trusted. I guess that means we're going to finally get around to filling those empty seats. I think we're still at uh, two or two and a half empty seats. Of course, Apocalypse is gone. Uh, Gene stepped down to uh, restart the X-Men. And we've been kind of like... Just tap dancing around whether or not Storm is going to stay. We don't know if she's staying. We don't know if she's going. We know she's not part of the Marauders anymore. I I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out. Sinister Secret number 57. For far too long, they shared an existence. Now the one has become two. The first is a shattered captain of a demanding queen, and the second a sinister sword under a sinister thumb. How long will the second stay there? How many more sinister demands will be too many? No one knows, but I think we're getting close. <sighs> I would say, please don't be a reference to Betsy and Quinan, but uh, I'd be kidding myself, because of course it is a reference to Betsy and Quinan, because that is a story we will not let die. Now, I mean, let's go into the sinister secret here. Betsy, Captain Britain, was shattered during Exit 10s and is now under the demanding queen in Saturnine. So it's definitely Betsy. 
Uh, Quanan wields a sword and works under Mr. Sinister in Hellion, so she is the Sinister Sword under a Sinister Thumb. Can we just not? Please. Can, we, need to, uh, we need to just kill one of them. <laughs> we do. We need to kill one of them or merge them back together. This is just getting so played out. Uh, Sinister Secret 58. It's still the early days of the Viscoran excavation of Blight Worlds, but an unknown material of immeasurable worth has begun appearing in the Crooked Market. So far, the Mad Jasper has snatched up every piece as soon as it's available for trade, but don't you worry, our Confederacy of Capes is set on acquiring some, by hook or crook. Now, the Viscora, we did see them being put to work mining on Blightspoke in in Otherworld during uh, the end of X of Tens. They are, of course, those aliens who were kind of inhabiting the sword base that uh, Kid Cable released uh, with his, uh, you know, Space Knight sword. Uh, looks like we might have some Jim Jaspers versus Mr. Sinister ahead of us, which, I tell you, I'm all in for that. I mean, that might be the only other world story that I won't complain about, especially if uh, Zeb Wells is writing it. Next, Sinister Secret number 59. Promotions are hard to come by when everyone is a resurrected immortal, but sometimes a change has to be made when an unexpected variable is added to the equation. Heroes and their do-gooder ways, always an inconvenience for a practical mutant. I haven't the foggiest idea what this might be a reference to. If anyone out there knows, let me know. Next, Sinister Secrets Revealed, reposted. Uh, It's one we've already read, but uh, in the interest of completionism, let's hit it again. We don't hear this word spoken often, so when we do, it's best to pay attention, because when you square that circle, what took a long time to build can come crumbling down rather quickly. Inferno. Now, we got this tease way back in an earlier Sinister Secret segment, so this is uh, serving as a reminder, because Inferno is happening pretty soon, so we'll you know be able to say that we knew it when. Finally, Sinister Secret number 60. What sinister someone has been hard at work studying the vile helix of a vile world? Psst, it's me. Shh. Now, this is very clearly a Locus vile reference, right? Uh, We know from solicits that Tarn and the gang will be showing up in the pages of Hellions pretty quick. So we also know that Sinister has the DNA from the Locus vile that was delivered to him by uh, Quinan, his uh, sinister sword under his sinister thumb. And we also know that... uh, a copy of Mr. Sinister, who was uh, killed by the uh, Locust Vial, is uh, back after reading the latest issue of Hellion. So definitely looking forward to seeing how this one plays out. Now, from here, we get back to comics, and we get yet another full-page spread. Um, it's 11.26 p.m., and this page seems to be just a way for Marvel to do a little bit of star effing. Um, I think... The way the faces are drawn here, they're very, very particular, so I'm, I'm guessing I'm supposed to recognize most of these people. But alas, I do not. Um, I was hoping we'd see less and less of this, you know, star effing the further up the corporate ladder Joe Casada went. You know, like get him further away from actually drawing and writing these things, and maybe we'd stop seeing quite so much of this, but no. Uh, Emma has a chat with two masked people from a hidden city. Uh, now, they have some very interesting designs. I like the way that they are portrayed here. Emma asks them for the contents of a Kara Karuka box. She says they can keep the box. She just wants what's inside. We don't know what this is all about just yet, uh, but it would seem that Emma has some plans in the works. Now, off to the side, Cyclops star Fs with someone I don't recognize, which facilitates in him waxing on with this ridiculous monologue, which 
ends with him saying he's an X-Man or something like that. It's it's very, very purple and uh, doesn't sound like Cyclops at all. Then it's 11.45 p.m. and it's time for the fireworks. And this will all be leading to the big reveal of Planet Sized, which I'm guessing most of you already know. But at the risk of spoiling it for a single one of you, because that's not what I do, I won't say anything more. But that is where we leave it. Next episode is uh, not Planet Size. We're actually taking a detour over to Children of the Atom number four, because that is the order in which Marvel wants us to read these things, apparently. But uh, after that, we will be getting into Planet Size so we can finally get that monkey off our collected backs here. We can finally talk about that thing that's been spoiled for so many of us out in the open. So uh, looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. But for now, let's talk about this final issue of X-Men Volume 5. Let's start with uh, some praise here. Um, I've always liked the way that Hickman writes Namor. Namor was probably the highlight for me during his uh, his Avengers run. Um, Namor was part of the New Avengers book, I believe, and I remember just absolutely loving the way that he was depicted. And here, it's, uh, it's no different. I, I like the way that uh, he was depicted here as being Namor, you know? Uh, he wasn't a, a team player. He wasn't gonna bow, he wasn't gonna fold, he stood his ground and was just telling it like it was. Um, it's not often we get to see people talking to Xavier and, and Magneto this way, especially since we don't really get a whole lot from from outside of Krakoa, right? Uh, it seems like anytime we do get a visit from someone outside of Krakoa, the first thing they do is basically mock the uh, the pretend society that Krakoa is uh, trying to uh, to be. We had, uh, what's her face, Iska the Unbeaten when she visited, and or when, when uh, Magneto and Xavier visited her, I should say. She was just making fun of them for having, like, this kiddie city, you know? It was like a high school world government extracurricular club, right? <laughs> That's what it seems like. They don't really, uh, you know, they, they, they don't really have so much of a, of a government, right? It's this quiet council, but it's portraying itself as a government. It's not, really. It kind of is, but at the same time, it on the world stage, it's it's laughable. And it's nice to have Namor kind of point that out. And it's just like, oh, you're going to give me a seat. How wonderful. You know, I, I think that's perfectly in, in fitting with uh, Namor's uh, sensibilities and his characterization. So really, really cool stuff there. I'm also a bit intrigued. I didn't... When the Illuminati was introduced... I remember thinking it was a really cool idea, you know, as a one-off. Even in canon, in continuity, as a piece of Marvel lore and a piece of Marvel history, I, I like the idea because it stands to reason that if you have these big brains, you you you'd probably see them congregate or at least kind of uh, orbit in the same sort of uh, atmosphere. They'd be bouncing ideas off of one another. They'd be thinking about... They'd be troubleshooting ahead of time. I mean, that's kind of Reed Richards' whole gimmick, right? He's looking for problems that might come down the line a lot of the times here. He's working on a machine that'll that'll figure out what's what the trajectory of the world is here and, and society and trying to, you know, see possibilities and avoid pitfalls, stuff like that. So it would stand to reason that an Illuminati would be a thing. I didn't like so much when Bendis started, like, really over-relying on it and using it as kind of the, you know, get-out-of-jail-free card for, like, every corner that he wrote himself into. That felt a little bit cheap. It really cheapened the concept to me. 
But here, I think that uh, I wouldn't mind seeing them again. Uh, the world is changing here in the Marvel Universe, right? Uh, in, in addition to the fact that we can't go a week and a half without another alien invasion, we also have these islands floating around now. We've got Kurokoa, we got Arako, we got former mutant terrorists as statesmen on the you know on the global stage. It's a it's a weird time, right? Um, we got mutant meds, magical mutant meds that are going to cure humanity's ails. And uh, I, I guess if we're going to play ball and pretend that Excalibur's a thing that exists, uh, I guess England's got those too. So the Illuminati probably wants to uh, be involved and figure out uh, what's what. So I, I like the idea that the Illuminati might be a thing again, so long as they don't become overexposed like they did during the, uh, the Bendis days here. Uh, what else do we get in this issue here? A uh, whole lot of star effing. Um, and again, you'll have to you'll have to excuse my ignorance because I am I am pop culture. Uh, uh, what is that word here? Immune? Not, not not so much immune. I just don't know it. I don't really watch a whole lot of uh, movies. Um, I also don't watch a whole lot of television. Uh, I mean, the wife and I just watched Parks and Recreation for the first time. I mean, that show ended a long time ago, and we just barely watched it. We're very far behind. We watched The Sopranos for the first time like six months ago. So, I mean, we're very far behind on pop culture. I think uh, I'm probably pretty good on like late 90s pop culture is about as, as far as I go. So I didn't recognize a lot of these faces who I'm sure I was supposed to. Uh, to me, it was uh, more of a distraction than anything. It's like because I'm looking at these faces, it's like, well, who's that supposed to be? Is that a Is that a Marvel character or is that... Just some celebrity that uh, Marvel would like to, you know, kind of you know, tickle the nape of, right? Just to be like, hey, we put you in a book. And I I, I don't know. Because to me, I mean, and this is me being a comics first sort of guy. Uh, if you're going to put people, like real life people in these books, like maybe have Chris Claremont visit. Well, where was he? Uh, maybe John Byrne, um, Scott Lobdell, Grant Morrison, you know. Um, maybe the people who actually... Affected the X-Men Rather than somebody who has a cable television show Who uh, probably won't even mention this on their social media Maybe, I don't know <laughs> Maybe maybe put some people who actually give a rat's ass about the characters in there And uh, we're a part of their history But that's just me as a comics first guy And of course Marvel is not a comics first company anymore So what are you going to do? Uh, we had the election here of course The election was weird I read the uh, the bit that uh, Gene was talking about a couple times here, trying to figure out exactly what in the hell was going on with the mutant mind meld or whatever, and just uh, the odd tabulation of... Uh, I don't know if it was just a measure of compatibility, uh, usability, uh, passion. I, I, I mean, it couldn't be a popularity contest because Sunfire's on the team and everybody hates his guts. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but... Uh, it felt underwhelming to me. It really did. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what I might have been expecting from this, but since it was spoiled for us so long ago, I probably I probably set whatever sides I had way too high. Um, this was never going to be like, and you know, I, I I don't often cite the Legion of Superheroes as something that I'd like to see more of in uh, other books, but they had elections like like every third issue it seemed, and. Uh, I, I kind of like the way that they, that they played with that sort of thing here. I think this issue, you know, and it's odd because I'm, I'm going to come across as a, as a bit of a hypocrite here because I complained that Excalibur, 
the Excalibur chapter of the Hellfire Gala was more was an Excalibur first book, right? It was all about let's let's set up Excalibur stories. The fact that with the gala doesn't really matter so much. This is all about setting up what's to come for Excalibur. And I complained about that because I thought I saw it as Excalibur not playing ball, you know, not uh, not showing respect to the rest of the line of books here. I have kind of the opposite feeling about this issue of X-Men here. I, I would have preferred it to be, and maybe this is just because I care about the subject matter a little bit more than I do things like Otherworld and uh, the Coven, but set up this issue as just the election, you know? Have have more of a stir, you know? I, I, you got to assume that this is well-known around Krakoa at this point, that there is going to be an election. Maybe include those pages that we got as spoilers back in the day. Maybe have characters like, oh man, I want to be an X-Man and this is why. Then we'd be able to maybe look at these characters and be disappointed for them if they don't get it. Or be happy for them if they do. Or maybe question why they did if they do. Like, maybe Sunfire doesn't want to be an X-Man, but he's picked, so he's going to be an X-Man. He was kind of conscripted. I mean, this is all me projecting and uh, armchair booking here. But the entire decision that they kind of hinged a lot of this uh, this issue on feels kind of like an afterthought. It doesn't have a whole lot of stakes to it. I just feel like could have done it a little bit better. Maybe show a character like like Chamber, you know, being like excited and wanting to be a part of this team, and then being just devastated when when his when his you know teammate Sink gets a spot and he doesn't. Maybe give us a little bit of that. But again, and I I don't know exactly what I wanted from this. I just know I. Didn't really get it. Uh, other than that, um, well, this is uh, this is where we end Volume Five of X Men, and next month we'll kick off probably a twelve to fifteen issue Volume Six of uh, of X Men. But uh, outside the story, we had a lot of fantastic artists on board here. A really, really good looking book. Uh, I would have appreciated less full page spreads, but uh, I, you know, I guess I understand it is kind of a Something of a jam book for uh, showcasing these these great artists. So I guess we got to allow it. And I mean, despite the fact that I've been... I probably am coming across mostly negative on this. I didn't hate the issue. Um, I, it didn't blow me away. But I guess I can come away from it saying I kind of dug it. But that's all I got to say about this issue. Uh, let's hop into the uh, mailbag before we cut out of here. We got a couple of letters to get to. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Way of X number one. Oh boy, one of my favorites of this run. He says, Between you and Andrew, most of my thoughts about this comic have been covered. It was absolutely wonderful. I came into it wonder, worrying that it could never hit my expectations, as they'd been gradually building since The Crucible first appeared, and my expectations were exceeded. Magnificent stuff. And oh boy, is it ever. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I can't wait for the end of this month when it finally shows up on Marvel Unlimited so we can get uh, a few more thoughts on the uh, on this just fantastic book here. It is, this is like the only book in this run so far that I've actually considered just uh, buying a whole bunch of digital copies of it and just gifting them to people because I want to hear their thoughts on this uh, book. That's how much I like this book. I'm willing to spend, you know, five bucks per copy to send it to people just so I can hear their thoughts on it. It's just... Oh boy, it is a wonderful, as Damien put it, it's magnificent. It's really, really good. Damien continues, Of course, having a weird brain, I spent most of the episode thinking about cheese toasties. 
<laughs> There's something about the unequal cultural exchange between the U.S. and the U.K. that means I know what Americans call a toasted cheese sandwich, but you don't know what we call what we call the same thing. I actually find myself craving a cheese and onion toasty. I'm having to physically stop myself from going into the kitchen and making one. So, uh, I guess a cheese toasty is a grilled cheese sandwich to uh, to us Yanks, right? Uh, I wasn't sure exactly what it was. I had a feeling it was something along those lines, but I wasn't 100% sure, and I just thought it would be a little bit funnier for me to keep get, keep asking what it was throughout the episode than, uh, you know, just pop it into Google and find out for myself. Damien continues, I'm also not a fan of Dr. Nemesis's new look, but I hear he's a fun guy. Uh, um, now, fun guy, of course. Uh, Dr. Nemesis is woefully without his hat. During this run so far And he has oh, I, I can't even really think about it He's got like mushrooms Growing out of his head It is it is really gross um, I don't know what it is about that uh, That, that just, like, really gets to me It like skeeves me out Like the worst kind of goosebumps It's like whoa I, I remember uh, What was it uh, I, I mean I know what it was I'm trying to remember if I can Pull the actual issue number out of the top of my head, and I, I cannot. Uh, the issue of uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, where he produces like a potato that uh, that Abigail takes a bite out of, that just skeeves me out. Oh, it's just so disgusting. And this, you know, just having, oh, I, 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 I gotta stop. I gotta stop. I'm gonna gag. But uh, I guess we can call Doctor Nemesis a fun guy from now on. It's a, uh, <laughs> it'll work in a pinch, right? Uh, Damien continues. I'm really just I'm, I'm just really excited to see where this goes next. I wonder if this is a deliberate setup for the trial of Magneto, as he seems pretty villainous in this story. And Professor X seems sympathetic for the first time in the Hox Pox Dox Rock Sox Locks Box Fox era. I can't wait to find out. And you know that was my first thought as well, because we have in this issue uh, Nightcrawler goes to like a. Uh, Boy, it's like a temple somewhere that has been, you know, co-opted into an Orcus base, and it's uh, like got like a museum of mutant atrocities in it. So they've got these sculptures of evil mutants. Basically, it's a way to kind of indoctrinate new followers or new um, agents of Orcus, I suppose, into. You know, fomenting a hatred and fear of mutants Especially in this brave new world Where mutants actually wield a little bit of political clout And one of the statues was of Magneto And it was a callback to X-Men number one At Cape Citadel Where he's launching the rockets Like we saw over in Essential X-Lapsed episode one And Nightcrawler was over there with his team Or his crew I don't know if they're officially a team yet But uh, he brought this one back And brought it back basically to Raz Magneto you know, to make fun of him in front of a crowd. And Magneto did not appreciate this at all, and he waxed on poetically about how, you know, that was a different time and how, uh, you know, sometimes force is the only way. And uh, really came across as uh, a darker shade of gray than we've seen him since the start of this era. Conversely, Professor X is haunted by dreams of a patchwork man. Of course, we know what the patchwork man is from uh, a way of X number two, but... The belief there is that he's being haunted by his son, Legion. And so he goes to Nightcrawler for assistance, which makes him like a lighter shade of gray than we've seen him uh, up to this point. I think when we see Xavier nowadays, especially with his face obscured by the Cerebro helmet, we 
don't trust him right away. At least I don't. I, I figure that he's hiding something. I mean, Mr. Sinister said it himself in the Sinister Secrets here that uh, sometimes the mask becomes the person. Uh, I don't know that he's exactly trustworthy here. But in Way of X, we actually see him without the helmet, and he goes to uh, Nightcrawler for help. He actually you know, reaches out and is like, hey, I, I need assistance with this. So it made him very sympathetic. And, uh, I mean, relatively speaking, very sympathetic. Uh, it might just be mildly sympathetic, but for this era, I mean, it doesn't get much uh, more sympathetic than this for Professor X. But a wonderful, wonderful issue that I could and have talked <laughs> for a long, long time about. Uh, and again, I really can't wait for this to hit Unlimited so we can get even more discussion. This is... This is definitely a touchstone for the show here. I haven't felt like this since uh, The Crucible was introduced, where I was, I couldn't wait for people who were listening to get to that point or just to chime in with their thoughts on The Crucible because that's it was a biggie, and I think this is uh, just as big. It's so many, so many different wonderful facets of Way of X. So, looking forward to more conversation. I was so happy to hear from Damien. I was uh, definitely looking forward to his thoughts on this issue as well. So thank you so much for writing in and sharing. Next up, we got Andrew talking about the second issue of the Hellfire Gala. This is X-Force number 20. He says, I definitely enjoyed this one better than the Marauders issue. I find X-Force to be a hit-or-miss title, so I don't regularly read it anymore. I did read the Terra Verde story arc, though, and was pleasantly shocked to see where that plot goes this issue. The White Queen confronting Sage about the takeover of a country actually felt like an important story development. So far, the Beast has had free reign to do all kinds of unsavory things for the greater good, and the thought of him facing some kind of judgment for it sooner rather than later is an interesting place for the story to go, especially with a high-profile trial on the horizon. Now, it could all amount to a hill of beans, but we can't worry about that now. We've got a gala to attend. And I'll definitely agree that X-Force was probably a stronger issue than Marauders, but as we talked about, uh, Marauders was, wasn't was really a story so much as it was uh, a collection of cameos and vignettes. So it's kind of hard to compare the two, but X-Force actually felt like like a story here, or the first part of a story, because we're going to get a continuation of that over in uh, in Wolverine here. Uh, one thing about uh, the White Queen confronting Sta- Sage, which we talked about during that episode, was uh, how great it was that Emma confronted her, not because of the the immorality of uh, the play, but the fear of uh, reprisal should the information ever get out. It uh, It's a bad look for Krakoa. It's a bad look for the mutants if they find out, if the world, you know, global stage finds out that... Uh, that they've been kind of puppet mastering this these plant people in an entire nation. I, I love the fact that Emma is more fearful of that than, you know, actually putting any thought into how just how evil <laughs> this is. Which, I mean, that's talking to the beast right there. Uh, he's done a lot of bad things, uh, thinking it's for the better, the betterment of the mutant future, and hasn't had to uh, hasn't had to answer for any of it yet. You know, and I, I mean, no pun on the beast here, but it's kind of the you give a monkey a gun thing. Who, who's at fault if it pulls the trigger? You know, um, Xavier has put Beast in this position where he's above the law. And so he is going to, he's going to test the limits, uh, of which he has none at this point. So I don't know if that's kind of the idle hands unchecked veering toward... 
you know, absolute corruptible power. I, I, I don't know, but it, it will be interesting to see how this all works out here. As I've said, every time Beast comes up, that I, I hope we're leading to some sort of a redemption arc for him. Um, I think I mentioned that I saw it posited somewhere that uh, this might be maybe not our Hank McCoy, but maybe the Dark Beast being brought back. Maybe they used his DNA because they knew that he would be ruthless enough to do what needed to be done, whereas maybe our, you know, happy, bouncing Blue Beast <laughs> would be a little bit different. I mean, a guy can, a Beast fan can hope, right? But uh, let's continue Andrew's message here. Speaking of the Beast, I definitely understand your feelings about how he has been written in the Hawks, Pox, Fox, Docs, and Socks era. I have my own particular gripes when it comes to how certain characters are written these days, which I will get into when we talk about Hellions. It's a sad fact that in modern comics, characterization is at the whim of whoever, whatever creator or editor is in charge at the moment. With Beast, however, I can't say that I absolutely hate it. I can see why the folks at Marvel would want the head of an NSA, CIA, KGB-type agency named The Beast to be a ruthless, immoral megalomaniac. The name The Beast sounds like a character in a John Le Carre Car spy novel. Is it obvious low-hanging fruit? Yeah. Does it feel like organic character development? Not really. Still, as a not-reader of X-Force, I kind of enjoy seeing where this goes. Maybe he'll be forced to join the Hellions. And yeah, very well said there. And, and you know, kind of like I just uh, was alluding to, it's, you know, Beast has uh, has nobody to answer to. And Beast, let's say that this is the actual Beast and not the Dark Beast, because, frankly, it probably is the real Beast, right? Let's look at him for a minute. He has been put in the position of the fixer. Like, every time anything happens that threatens mutanity, right? Uh, the legacy virus. Uh, and I always joke about the beasts, um, about his quests, about his laboratorial quests, where every six months or so we'll see him holding a test tube being like, oh yeah, the legacy virus, I gotta work on that. Oh yes, I'm hard at work at the legacy virus, and you know it because I'm holding a test tube. You know, and then we wouldn't hear about it for six months, and then again we'd see him in a lab just like looking through a microscope, he's like, oh yes, the legacy virus. But let's look at that like actually as like a core issue. Beast has been tasked with fixing things. He's been tasked with cementing Mutantkind's health, security, sanctity, uh, future, right? So he was hard at work at the Legacy Virus, but he didn't have any sort of uh, diplomatic immunity. He had to do everything according to a code of ethics. He couldn't just collect a bunch of infected mutants or infect a bunch of mutants with this virus and attempt to cure it. He had to do things ethically, which... I mean, that veers into subject matter that's far too uh, complex for a comic book show where we could talk about experimentation and, uh, and just scientific ethics here. But let's take it back a step here because I don't want to go down that path at all. Uh, Beast had to work under ethics and could not, couldn't just test willy-nilly. We jump ahead a decade and we have the endangered species, right? We had, uh, had M-Day, no more mutants. Beast was tasked with figuring that out as well. Why weren't there any new mutants? And this played out kind of like the Legacy Virus did, where every few months we'd see Beast hard at work in the lab for three or four panels being like, oh yes, the endangered species, how am I going to deal with this? Now, he would have to work through a code of ethics there, and this is at a point where the Marvel Universe was kind of a lot smaller, right? Um, Back in the 90s, the X-Men were kind of their own thing off to the side. They could do... There was more freedom to tell X-Men stories without affecting the wider Marvel Universe. 
in the 2000s in the age of, you know, civil war and uh, secret invasion and stuff like that and 55 Avengers teams and the initiative and all that, the Marvel Universe got much smaller. So an X-Men story would have to show ramifications in an Avengers story if it was big enough and, and vice versa, right? So X-Men creators were a little bit more hamstrung as to what they could have Beast do. And, I mean, they couldn't cure M-Day, right? That was certainly not an option for that time. So they had to drag it out. And, I mean, we can look at that in story as, like, Beast is hard at work toiling, trying to figure this all out, but he has restrictions on how far he can go in order to, to address this. So, again, he's hamstrung by a code of ethics. Now, as the head of X-Force, and as someone with, uh, you know, full diplomatic immunity really doesn't have a code of ethics anymore, and he's making full use of that. We saw him kill Omega Red. We've seen him kill Terra Verdans. We've seen him infect an entire nation so they can rule over them. This is Beast Unchecked. And as the guy who's been the fixer for decades, a, a toiling and largely unsuccessful fixer at that, now he's unchecked. He has the full backing of Professor X to do whatever he needs. And it's the first opportunity he has to not adhere to a, a set of ethics. And I can see how that um, that's appealing uh, for not only the character, but for the creators involved in writing Beast. But you guys know me. Uh, how did we walk this back? Do we walk this back? I feel like we will need to <laughs> eventually because, I, I mean, he's, he's very sadistic at this point. He is a sociopath. He knows what he's doing is wrong, hence why it's so secretive, right? If he wasn't ashamed of himself, this would just be all well-known. It would be out in the open. Yeah, I, you know, I blew a hole in a Mega Red's chest and put a, put a tracker in him. What are you going to do about it? But it's secretive. It's all secret. So he knows that it's not right. And yet, uh, not right is the best option for him and for X-Force. So that's what we get. Uh, now, Beast, like Way of X, is a topic I can discuss and have discussed at great length, so I will try to put a button in it for now. I probably spend more time thinking about this stuff than is healthy. But let's get back into Andrew's message here. It says, There's not much I can say about the Deadpool plot other than that I enjoyed it. I'm glad it wasn't the only storyline, though. And, uh, yeah, I agree. Deadpool is great in, in small bursts, I feel. I feel he's better in small bursts, unless they're doing something that makes us feel sympathy for him. You know, I, I couldn't do a whole issue of him being Wile E. Coyote. I mean, we've seen a little bit of that in that Savage Avengers uh, sidebar we took during uh, King in Black. Very much a Looney Tunes character, which it's cute the first time, but when the entire issue is kind of hinged on it, it's like, where, where are the stakes and why am I reading this? But having Deadpool here <laughs> showing up being like, no, no, I'm an honorary mutant. Let me on the island. Uh, that was fun. That was fun enough. Now, Andrew wraps up with, I like that this issue used the higher profile that the Hellfire Gala gives it to further some of the X-Force plots in what seems to be like a major way. So far, the Hellfire Gala is one-to-one -one for me, and thankfully, Hellions is up next. So until Forge gets off his lazy butt and does something other than making that one glove thing Domino wears, <laughs> make mine X-Last. And yeah, I mean, I'm, again, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite here because I didn't give X-Force any guff for furthering their storylines like I did Excalibur. But to me, it read differently. And, and again, this might be 
Maybe I just have like a knee-jerk bias against Excalibur that I need to come to terms with and apologize for before I talk about any issue of Excalibur. <laughs> but uh, this, to me, felt a little bit more organic in that, I mean, we're furthering the plot here, but it has to do with, like, Emma Frost calling them out, which wouldn't have happened had... Well, I mean, it could have happened if not for the Hellfire Gala, but it made more sense as part of the Hellfire Gala. We have our little Deadpool aside, which wouldn't have happened if not for the Hellfire Gala. So I feel like this story is very much rooted in the gala, but also expanding on the X-Force story, where Excalibur was kind of the other way around. It's like, well, we need to do Excalibur stuff, but we also need to show that we're at the gala, so we'll figure that out when we're done. Does that make any sense, or am I just a a bitter, jaded (laughs) a-hole? I don't know, but uh, thank you so much for writing in on that one, Andrew. And I, and I got your uh, your further emails, and I really can't wait to discuss those with the folks as well. So thank you so much. And uh, if anybody out there would like to be part of the show and share your thoughts on anything that we talk about or, or just about anything at all, please feel free to find me. I'm easily found. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Always some fun conversation there. I hope to see you there if you're, uh, if you're a user of Facebook and have any interest in talking about all sorts of silly X-Men stuff. Finally, for thousands of hours worth of comics-related audio, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if while you're there, you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, and has been for uh, near and on six years now, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two and ask them to maybe do the same if they uh, if they like what they hear as well. Uh, it would really help the show, and it would really help me feel better about myself. So uh, I thank you in advance. Um, I'd also like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today and allowing me to uh, to reside in your ears for the better part of an hour. It really, really means the world to me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.